it's time to sit back and relax with your favorite drink. And listen. The Flesh Reaper. I didn't think I'd make it a week. I certainly didn't think I'd be alive after two weeks. There I was, still kicking after 15 days. If I was a religious person, I might have believed a divine will was behind it. But I'm not. I thank the solid basement door instead. And I thank the cabin's previous owner for stocking the basement with plenty of MREs and pickled vegetables. Can't say the smell stayed pleasant after the first few days. So I had to start storing my excess waste in canning jars when the portable toilet became full. Well, I'll spare you further details on the matter, but let's just say that if you ever feel like building a survival shelter, keep in mind that food, water, and air aren't your only biological imperatives. Now, if you need a refresher on my predicament, here it is in a nutshell. For the first time in my life, I was a romantic, heroic fool. Seventeen days ago, my ex-girlfriend called me up out of the blue, and in a voice tinged with fear, she begged me to come pick her up. The location in question was by Lake Crusoe, in the eastern part of Oregon. I am denied, but ultimately threw caution to the wind and drove here, only to find her and her current boyfriend dead at the hands of a pack of creatures that had been living in the woods for decades. Those in the know called them the meat locusts, and there was only one kind of meat they liked. Their numbers were managed by a group of specialized hunters known as wranglers. I met one such wrangler, a woman named Madison, and I owe my life to her. I'd say she owed me her life as well, but, well, except that at the time I don't know if she was still alive. The last I saw of her was her injured and bleeding form getting airlifted to safety as I ran from a pack of the beasts. I took refuge in a nearby home with a survival shelter, the creatures clawing and tearing at the door day and night, utterly obsessed with this one pitiful human that had gotten away. As I'd lost my phone escaping from the meat locusts, my only link to the outside world was a camping radio. It kept me appraised of the deteriorating situation in the town of Crusoe, which wasn't all that far from my location. At first, the reports focused on a series of murders and missing persons. It suggested a threat of some kind, survivors and eyewitnesses talking of small, pale, humanoid creatures that you could barely see until they were right on top of you. Various politicians and government officials tried to sway the masses with a cover story involving a military accident and a hallucinogenic chemical that was affecting both the wildlife and humans around Crusoe. In other words, animals were attacking humans, and humans saw the animals as monsters. It was a really dumb story, and once independent video evidence of the meat locusts began to pile up, it died a quick death. A week into my confinement, the radio became useless. The shelter's owner had brought the wrong size replacement batteries for the radio. The last I heard of Crusoe was that 21 people were confirmed dead and another 18 were missing. The town was under a full lockdown and no one except essential personnel were allowed to enter or leave the area around Lake Crusoe. The good news was that the Oregon National Guard was being deployed to maintain order and deal with the threat. I allowed some hope to enter my mind, believing that my salvation was coming at last. Eight days later, I was still in the basement. If salvation was coming, it was taking its sweet-ass time. Night and day had become useless concepts for me, but the basement did have a conventional clock, so I kept to a basic schedule. Day 15 had been more of the same, 
with me eating a poor example of turkey and mashed potatoes, walking a circle around the basement a hundred times over, reading a chapter in a survivalist manual involving turning your urine into drinkable water, and playing who knows how many games of solitaire with a deck of cards I come across. That day, as with every day before, my routine was accompanied by the constant squeal of bony claws on the basement's solid oak door. Either the MLs were taking turns or they really didn't tire, because I couldn't remember a single moment during my interment that the damnable things weren't clawing at the door. I tried to block it out by picturing a serene valley filled with bird calls and bright flowers, only to have the image switch to a river of murky water surging through my picturesque landscape. Sleep was my only other enemy, one that I could fight for a time but not forever, and that night I lost my battle to it as I had the last fourteen nights prior, my pistol lying next to my sleeping bag, my eyes staring at the basement door as they closed, the endless scratching my lullaby. I could accept the boredom, the smell and the lack of human contact. I could even accept the barely edible meals at my disposal, but sleep just felt wrong to me. It was a vulnerability I couldn't afford, not because I thought I could fight off the MLs if they breached, but because I could only use the pistol if I was awake, and I wasn't planning on using it on them. It was also the one dream, the same ugly dream that plagued me each night. I had a lot of horrid experiences to live with at that point, a plethora of nightmare material to darken my sleep for the rest of my life. Yet I was consistently dreaming of the door finally failing, cracking inward and spewing forth all those determined abominations. The dream ended just as I saw them coming, my limbs in their jaws, my life reduced to a simple statistic, one more victim of the meat locusts. Ah, one gets into weird thought processes when your sense of time is distorted, when the world seems so close and yet so far away, and when you expect death at any moment. But that was where I was. I was in the middle of the dream when the routine changed me. In my dream, I was watching the door buckle and tear as numerous claws punched through it. The next thing I knew, I was wide awake, grabbing my gun and pointing it at the door, my heart hammering away in my chest. It wasn't what I'd heard. It's what I didn't hear any longer. The scratching had ended. I laid there, gun at the ready, expecting something, anything, everything... This had to be bad news. They had to have found another way in. They couldn't have just stopped. It was possible they'd found a new victim to pursue, but then there'd be screaming and thumping and all manner of violent sounds instead of silence. If armed resistance found them, there should be gunshots and explosions shaking the house. This quiet felt like the pause a lion made before pouncing on an antelope. I breathed, listened, and aimed. But there was no other sound, no hint of what the MLs were up to now. I glanced at the basement clock, 2.33am. Hell of a time for the MLs to alter their routine. Not that they cared about time like humans did. Long, nerve-wracking minutes passed by, but no footfalls or thumps could be heard. I finally got to my feet, deciding that I needed to get proactive. I went over to the door and put my ear to it. No reverberations came forth, but I didn't dare allow myself any hope. I walked around the basement, inspecting every corner and every dark shadow. I checked the air vent cover several times over. 
It was too small and too secure for an ML to use, but in my haggard state of mind, I assumed death could come from any direction. After that, I sat back down on my sleeping bag and evaluated the possibilities. Either they were all dead, they were all silently standing in place, or they were all gone. I knew that staying here was the safest option, and I could probably last a few more weeks if necessary. Then again, maybe it wasn't the safest option. If the MLs had changed tactics, then something else in the world around me must have changed as well. Thoughts of the MLs fleeing from an impending military airstrike came to mind, and I hadn't planned on surviving this long just to be counted as collateral damage. Too many unknowns. The first trick was to solve a few of them. I didn't have to leave the house after all. Just getting upstairs into a phone would be a major win for me. Of course, that meant opening the one thing that kept the MLs at bay. If they were being stealthy for a change, they'd be on me in seconds. I considered waiting a few more hours for the sun to show up, but the MLs aren't creatures of the night. They're just as deadly in the sunshine, and if they were gone right now, they could still return and take away my one opportunity to escape. The age, old question. Should I stay, or should I go? A few weeks ago, the workaday person I used to be would have played it safe that person was gone, or at least heavily suppressed. The new me was in charge now, and that version went to the sliding bolt on the door and unlatched it. My right hand gripping my gun, I gently pushed the wooden door, my eyes scanning for movement, my ears cocked for the faintest sound. The door swung open a few inches before it encountered resistance. The door was complaining as I forced it wide enough for me to squeeze through. Five wooden stairs greeted me in the glow from the basement fluorescence, but the rest of the house remained dark and still. I waited just inside the door, watching and listening and fearing the next step I had to take. When nothing came at me after a minute, I went to the corner of the basement I'd used as a trash site and grabbed an empty can of Spam, my least favorite survival food. I walked back to the door, listened a moment longer, then tossed the can past the top of the stairs, preparing to close the door if any reaction occurred. The can hit the wooden floor above with a metallic clang. But that was it. Nothing else thumped above. Nothing else stirred. It was possible the MLs were wise to such a feint, but I doubted it. At least this part of the house seemed clear. I'd managed to find a flashlight during my captivity, and I thumbed it on as I moved through the opening and onto the stairs, Flashlight in my left hand, gun in my right. I advanced each step with grave hesitation, stopping and listening for any new noises. When I made it to the top, I swept the hallway and found it a mess. Scratch marks, rips in the wallpaper, leaves and pine cones littering the floor. At least I could breathe fresher air now, though a noticeable chill had descended into the area. Or maybe it was just my mood. A chance to look back down the stairs morbidly curious about the state of the door that had been saving me all these days. I swore when I saw the state of it. Ragged chunks of wood had been torn out, and there was hardly a square inch of wood not scratched or gouged. I doubt it would have held more than a few more days. I was amazed it had held as long as it had. Okay, I was free. The plan remained the same. Find a phone or some other way to contact the authorities. Also, I wanted to use a real bathroom. My own body stink could have been mistaken for a mustard gas attack, 
but I had to be sure they were gone first. I walked the rooms of the darkened cabin, half expecting an ML to leap at me from any shadowed room and every blind corner. I have no idea how SWAT cops do it, entering a residence blind with an arm perp potentially around every corner. I kept the room lights off, despite my desire to dispel the darkness, since it might act as a signal to any MLs outside of the house that their prey was out of its cage. It seemed like every window in the cabin was smashed, the furniture torn or busted, the front door bashed off its hinges. I kept an eye out for a landline phone, but none were present. The cabin owner probably relied on cellular reception, which didn't do me any favours. At least the well water still worked, and I gave myself a good cleansing in the cabin's bathroom. I found the living room and sat down on the mangled remains of a sofa, considering my next move. I still had no clue as to why the MLs had left. The outside view offered a lovely moonlight sky that I hadn't seen in what felt like forever, but the trees around the cabin were menacingly silent. They could be outside prowling around for all I knew. There was no way I was attempting to reach civilization at night. Well, I wasn't sure which direction to even go in at this point. It started to feel like I'd only succeeded in expanding my prison confines and nothing more. I felt very alone and exposed at that moment. The temptation to return to the basement snuck into my thoughts, but all I had to do was remember the bad state of the door to bat away that notion. My only choice was to risk travel. I still had one flashball, the clever weapon designed by the Wranglers for throwing MLs into confusion, but it wouldn't save me if the MLs found me, nor would the gun. Perhaps I could check out the bedroom and see if the owner's wardrobe included a blue outfit. Then, I heard it. In the hallway nearby, out of my line of sight, a footfall came down and a floorboard creaked in response. I was on my feet instantly, the blood racing in my ears as I aimed my gun and flashlight at the hallway entrance. I cursed myself for my stupidity, going through all the possibilities in rapid-fire succession. This was a trap. I lingered too long. I'd drawn attention to myself, and so on and so forth. Regardless, I had the hallway covered, and I was going to shoot whatever came into my view, and hopefully it wouldn't have friends. The interloper was silent now, and it must have seen the beam of my flashlight. It didn't come into view like I wanted, but instead started making rustling sounds. Maybe the creature knew about flashlights and knew better than to step into the beam. Was it looking for another path into the living room? Was it waiting for its pals to catch up? And then something flew into the light, something small and cylindrical. I'm sorry to tell you I didn't commit myself well at that moment, for I freaked and pulled the trigger on the pistol. The fact that the trigger didn't move one iota informed me of my newest mistake. I hadn't taken off the safety. The cylinder crashed to the ground out of the light. I had enough presence of mind not to follow the object with my flashlights. Keeping the gun trained on the entrance, I thumbed the safety off and readied myself for whatever came next. The thrown object was a distraction, and I wasn't going to fall for another... My enlarged pupils took in the fierce blue-white blast, my ears deafened by the sudden roar. I recoiled and fell backwards on the couch, unable to see anything through my pained eyes, attempting to get my bearings enough to defend myself. In my disoriented state, 
I barely registered something large rushing around the corner. I tried to bring up my gun, but a human hand grabbed my wrist and twisted hard. Fresh pain assailed me and the gun slipped from my hands, thumping to the wooden floor. Put your hands on your head right now, ordered a gruff voice, a deep male tone that brooked no dissension. I actually felt somewhat relieved. This was no ML. As my eyes cleared, I saw that my blurry attacker was a large, muscular human clad in black fatigues, wearing a balaclava and bulky high-tech goggles that I assumed were designed for night vision. In his arms was an assault rifle with a mounted flashlight, pointed right at my head. I was getting a serious case of deja vu at this point. Did... did you just flashbang me? I asked shakily, now realizing what the cylinder had been. Hands, he ordered again, and I complied. My cooperation seemed to put him at ease as he carefully reached down to grab my gun and then backed off several feet, rifle always aimed at my direction. He placed the gun on a nearby lampstand and looked around the room, checking for other threats. You alone? he asked. Yes, I was in the basement. I was stuck down there for... Don't need your life story, pal, he said, cutting me off. Have you seen any MLs since you got out? MLs? He was using the Wrangler term for the little rampaging monsters. Was this another Wrangler, or had the lingo caught on with others? I wouldn't be out here if I thought they were still around, I answered. I think they left several hours ago. The masked man finished his survey of the room, then turned all his attention back to me. Here's a uh, wild question. Is your name Hector? I was surprised enough by the question that he'd had to ask it again to jog me out of my amazement. The implications, well, they were too good to be true. This was a legitimate rescue. My nightmare was finally over. Yes, um, Hector Delacroix. He laughed at my response. Oh, pal, you just lost me fifty bucks, but for once I'll be glad to pay it. I had no idea what he meant by that at the time, but rather than explain, he put his left hand to his left ear and started quietly talking to himself. I inferred he had a radio under his balaclava and was communicating with someone. I wanted to ask him if I could put my hands down now. I wanted to ask him a lot of things, in fact, but I politely let him finish his radio conversation first. His demeanor was more laid back now, making me hope that there was more good news coming. The area's clear for now. He explained. Third Eye just did a sweep and the pack that's been staking out this spot is moving onward. Can you stand a short hike? Oh, if it gets me out of here, I'd run the Boston Marathon, I replied. I was curious about this Third Eye he'd mentioned, but I was more curious about our exit plan. We are getting out of here, right? We're going to our base camp. We'll have further discussions there. He then removed his goggles and balaclava, revealing a dark-skinned man with a shaved head and a short beard. He was a far less menacing figure without the face covering, and I was glad for that. Theo, he stated. He went over to the lampstand and grabbed the gun off it. He hesitated before coming back to me, and instead of handing me the gun, he said, I don't want you walking around without protection, but I was told you're a civvy with no combat experience. I smiled at the comment, mostly because it meant that Madison had to be alive and healthy enough to tell them about my uselessness on the battlefield. That is true. I do have one flashball with me, though. You can keep the gun. 
I threw out the term as a way of gauging his ML knowledge. He seemed to know what it was, and he nodded and tucked the pistol in his belt. Grab what gear you need before we go. We're still a long way from safe, and the MLs could come back this way if they wanted to. I spent several more minutes down in the basement, gathering some clothes and portable food supplies into my backpack. Even though I felt very much rescued, the last two and a half weeks had taught me that when life puts you on a twisting path, you can never be sure how long the path will continue before it straightens out again. Or, in fact, if it ever does. Part 2 Stepping out of the cabin for the first time in days felt like an act of pure freedom, as if I'd been given an extension on my lifespan. That feeling faded quickly as I took in the shadowed land. The pale moonlight lit up the treetops, but it mostly created more dark spots than it dispelled. Theo had stepped out with me, totally at ease with circumstances despite the fact that we were very clearly all alone. I then picked up on a distant whining sound coming from above us. I looked about and then spotted a green light centered within a dark insectile silhouette. Theo pointed to it and said, Good eye, it's keeping a watch on us. It's how I know we're safe for now. So we had a drone escorting us. I can't say I was happy about that. I'd rather have a dozen soldiers keeping us safe than a drone that did nothing but watch us. Still, considering that someone had bothered to show up at all, griping felt like an act of ingratitude. Theo began leading us through the gloom of the forest, flashlights on and probing the woods around us, heading steadily downward toward what I hoped was a throng of well-armed, locust-killing badasses. I knew the drill. Follow his lead, no talking. I couldn't help but feel anxious as we passed large patches of bramble and thick copses of trees. Yet the night air did smell wonderful, and felt even better after all that time cooped up. After a time, my anxiety diminished to a dull fear, where every step we'd made took me further away from the nightmare my life had become. After walking for close to an hour without any incidents, I gave myself permission to feel something like hope again. That was also the point when I spotted lights through the foliage. Theo pointed to them and said, Just through those trees. I was picturing something out of the TV show MASH, a sea of green military tents and combat vehicles with men marching about. Why else had the MLs taken off, if not out of fear of an army? Then we came through the trees and... MASH, it was not. It was no army camp, that was for sure. There was a solitary vehicle parked on a dirt road that I would have classified as the offspring of a large RV in an armoured personnel carrier surrounded by a ring of blue-tinged floodlights. Clearly designed as an all-terrain vehicle, it was fashioned with six huge tyres that came up to my chest. I got the impression that this thing was designed to take all the trappings of modern living with you while you went sightseeing in war zones and wastelands. So, um, no soldiers, I remarked unable to contain my disappointment any longer. Theo stopped and gave me a sympathetic smile. Yeah, we're uh, not exactly the cavalry, but trust me when I say that this is the safest place for miles around. Oh, I definitely trusted him about that, but I still wanted a platoon standing between the monsters and me. Our drone tag-along settled into a slow circle around the vehicle as we approached the camp. There were no guards to greet us, just the omnipresent blue glow enveloping the sight. Theo walked right up to a nearby metal ramp and knocked three times on a steel door on the side of the vehicle. 
The door unlatched and opened, and a man of light skin and light bill greeted him, a tired expression on his face. This new man gave Theo a quick hello, and then looked at me, scratching his shaggy brown hair as he scrutinized me. Unbelievable, he muttered. Then he looked at Theo. You owe me fifty bucks. Ah, uh, no, man, replied Theo. You'll have to wait till payday, though. Too many wild nights. This apparently struck them as funny, and they laughed and gave each other a quick fist bump. Theo looked back at me and pointed at the other guy. This is Abbott. If he gives you a hard time, let me know and I'll set him straight. Theo moved past him and into the vehicle. Abbott came out to greet me with a handshake. Unlike Theo, he was wearing civilian clothing, and his Hawaiian t-shirt was especially loud and colourful. I guess you were, um, expecting a more professional outfit, huh? I was uh, expecting a lot of things, I said. Abbott had a disarming smile, and despite the lack of firepower around me, I felt oddly at ease. Welcome to the Oasis, he said, waving at the vehicle. It's 100% locust-proof, even when parked. The lights are just our first line of defense. But, just in case, let's continue this conversation inside. The interior continued the theme of some wild engineer's fantasy to combine living quarters with military preparedness. The back half contained a cramped kitchen, bunk bed section, and lockers for supplies and personal effects. I figured a bathroom was somewhere in there too. The front half was full of logistical equipment, the crown jewel being the desk with six separate LCD monitors sporting all kinds of video footage, charts, tables and graphs. Most of the gear was bolted down in one fashion or another. No wasted space and no windows, and little in the way of decoration. I'd started to feel like I'd traded one survivalist shelter for another. I immediately missed the cold air of the outside, and there was a certain pervasive odour wrinkling my nose, the kind of sweat sting that comes from perspiring people stuck together in close quarters for a long time. Well, complaints aside, I did feel safe again, and considering that I hadn't felt that way in days, it was the best gift this group could have given me. Abbott was busy sealing the main door while Theo relaxed in the kitchen area, putting up his feet and downing a bottle of water. I was about to ask if there was only two of them, when I almost stepped on the third member of their team, lying prone on the floor halfway into a compartment positioned under the computer desk. At first I could only see green pants and a pair of boots, but the body quickly crawled back out. She didn't notice me as she moved to stand, holding what appeared to be a mouse trap with a very dead mouse stuck to it. She also shared Abbott's disdain for uniforms, as she wore a blue tank top and a multicolored beaded necklace, topped off with long brown hair streaked with bright strands of lavender. Third one in a week, she said absently, her pleasant voice unable to mask her disgust at the dead things in her hands. You'd think a vehicle that's locust-proof would be rodent-proof as well. She then noticed me at last with a start, and I realized how young she really was, no more than twenty. Thanks to Madison, I carried this idea that wranglers were old veterans with scars and wrinkles. It hadn't occurred to me that there might be younger blood in the ranks. Oh, sorry, she said. I knew you were coming, but I didn't think you'd get here this quickly. She walked over to a sealed metal garbage can, opened it, and deposited the dead rat. I caught a whiff of strong decay from the container. It was where the rodent corpses abided. 
Abbott came to my side and pointed at the third member of their party. This is Laszlo. She takes care of tech and pests. Still can't get rid of you, though, Laszlo joked to Abbott, resealing the can. She made to shake my hand, then realized it was the hand that had been holding the mouse, so she detoured to get a sanitation wipe. So, after a debriefing? Abbott asked me. Any information you could give us might be helpful here. Abbott, give the guy a break, chimed in Theo. He's been stuck in a basement for two weeks. Abbott frowned and looked Theo's way. We don't have time for him to detox, Theo. Well, you can give him some hospitality, though, said Laszlo. She held a water bottle and a protein bar and offered them my way. I took the water bottle and drank deeply out of it. It's okay, I'm up for it, I said. And that wasn't bravado on my part. I was too wound up by my rescue to sleep. Do I get to ask some questions, too? In time, Abbott said, then glanced at Laszlo. What's Third Eye saying? Pack's uh, still in the trees, she replied. When they come out, we'll lock on again, but it's been three hours since they went in there. We'll need to send a replacement for Voyeur, too. I had no idea what any of that meant, but thankfully Laszlo noticed my confusion. Oh, Third Eye's our drone system, specially tailored to monitor meat locusts, she explained. The bastards don't have much of a thermal reading, so we use a program designed to detect their shape and movement style. It's a good thing they're so identical. Abbott frowned at her. Laz, it's my job to spill our secrets. Go monitor the situation and tell me if anything changes. She rolled her eyes and sat down at the computer desk with exaggerated exasperation. Abbott turned to me and motioned at a pair of folding chairs. As we took our seats, Theo came over and leaned on a wall near us. He must have wanted to hear my tale. Laszlo was also sneaking glances in my direction. Well, forgive me and us if we're a little rusty on interpersonal skills, said Abbott. We've been doing our own thing for some time. No problem, I said. I must admit I thought all you wranglers were the lone wolf hunter types. Oh, many are, he admitted. Some of us do things different. We fight monsters with science, Laszlo commented in a sing-song voice. That's pretty much true, Abbott confirmed. I think you deserve to know that we uh, weren't here for you specifically, Hector. I did make a promise to Madison that if the opportunity availed, we would search the area you were last seen in, but only if it didn't jeopardize our bigger priorities. Just so happens that the pack we're pursuing came your direction. For what it's worth, Madison painted you as a potential survivor, which is why I made my bet with Theo. Oh, um, I usually win these bets chimed in Theo. Madison saved my ass, I told them. I'm no survivalist. Abbott showed a thin smile. Hector, the MLs dine on survivalists regularly. Nobody does well against these things unless they're willing to change paradigms. You did, and you're here. I was definitely charmed to the guy, and he made me feel like one of the gang, despite the fact I'd just met them. So... How's Madison? She's okay, right? Laszlo practically flew over to us as I finished my question, holding an iPad in front of me as she scrolled through a series of pictures at lightning speed. With a wide smile, she finally stopped at a photo showing a hospital room with a supremely annoyed occupant in a hospital bed looking at the camera and scowling. I found myself laughing, mostly out of relief, 
with Laszlo joining me in the mirth of the moment. I don't think I've ever met a person more angry at getting a photograph than Madison, said Laszlo. This picture's from three days ago. Oh, she suffered a pretty bad abdominal wound and a major blood loss, added Abbott. She's a tough one, though, and always has been. Doctors want her in the hospital for another week. We'll see who wins that battle. Sounds like you know her pretty well, I said. Abbott shrugged. We have um, conferences of sorts. Meetings where wranglers get together to share data and techniques. Well, we've talked. Can't say we see eye to eye on much. She's old school and I'm the opposite. But she did contact me after she regained consciousness. By then, Crusoe was almost a week into its ML infestation. Goddamn monsters, spat out Theo. The MLs, I asked. The government, he clarified. Should have contacted us on day one. They let this thing go on for six days before they got other wranglers involved. How many of you are there? I asked. Besides us, there's two brothers back in town, Theo replied. They're in an, an advisory role, making sure the police and the National Guard know what they're up against. I didn't really want to know the answer to the question I was about to ask. But I asked it nonetheless. So, um, how bad is it? The three of them exchanged looks, probably trying to decide who gets to tell me the news. Abbott was ultimately overpowered by the stares of the other two. After all, he was the one in charge. He sighed helplessly. I'll make you a deal, Hector, he said. We do have an ongoing situation, and I need your intel more than you need mine. You give me your gory story, and I'll answer every locust-related question you want to ask afterwards. He means it too, said Laszlo. He loves the sound of his own voice. It's the only voice here that doesn't give me a headache, he joked back. The others laughed, and I admit that I laughed with them. I certainly could think of worse fates than being stuck with these three. At least we all knew how to laugh. Well, I don't know if laughter is, in fact, the best medicine, but it does help to shield one from the horrors. So I told them all of it. My stupid and heroic trek to save my ex-girlfriend, the horror and carnage I encountered, my fateful meeting with Madison and our ensuing attempt to reach safety. I half expected to bore my listeners, considering how much more massive their experience was to mine concerning the meat locusts, but all three of them seemed attentive to my story. Perhaps they were starved of alternative viewpoints. I'd learned later that all three of them had spent a rather inordinate amount of time together in distant locations, bereft of human culture and contact. They might have been socially starved. Then again, it might have been intelligence gathering. Laszlo zeroed in on the effectiveness of the flashbulbs, while Theo critiqued Madison's hunting strategy. Abbott just took it all in, never giving away any preference of interest in any one piece of data I reported. I talked for a long time, and when I was done I felt drained, as if telling my story had released all the tension bottled up inside me. Despite my growing fatigue, I resisted asking for a bunk. I told Abbott to start in on his part of the deal and Abbott happily obliged. He asked me where I wanted to start, and I told him to tell me about his group. In particular, how was it that Madison was so starved for support and equipment while Abbott's team seemed to have Batman levels of tech and preparation? 
Abbott confessed that he was, in fact, cheating when it came to funding. In fact, what he was doing was technically illegal. Abbott was actually a professor, Dr. Ben Abbott from Yale, out on a very long sabbatical. Some funding came from the college, to which Abbott routinely fed extremely long and detailed research reports that would eventually be publicly disclosed once the government could no longer keep the MLs a secret, which, considering recent events, was about to occur. He also had a business deal with a gun manufacturer who fed Abbott money through a few offshore accounts, on the grounds that once the MLs went public, they'd be positioned to sell specialised equipment to a now paranoid public and, pardon the pun, make a killing. Abbott figured that at least a few government officials knew about his alternate funding arrangements, but as long as he produced results and didn't cross any lines, they looked the other way. Can't say I approved of all that under-the-table dealing, but, as Abbott put it, having the funding to properly study the MLs was paying off in spades. His group's research was helping other wranglers track and kill MLs far more effectively than before, which meant more lives getting saved in the process. Yes, Abbott's group was mostly about research. Before Crusoe, they were stationed in the Midwest, following packs that kept to the flyover parts of America. With fewer people in harm's way, the team had more time to track and monitor the monster's behavior and patterns. The isolation also helped to keep their work hidden from prying eyes and social media. Abbott and Laszlo did most of the scientific work, while Theo was in charge of defense and hunting. Don't you get bored working with researchers? I asked Theo at one point. He laughed lightly at my suggestion and said, Well, keeping these two alive is a full-time job. Boredom doesn't enter into it. Indeed, researching the MLs meant getting uncomfortably close to them frequently. The team also took out packs heading for human habitations. Theo boasted that they had one of the highest kill rates of any Wrangler team, though he grudgingly confessed that Madison had the highest individual total. That's why we're out here and not on defense, Abbott told me. The behavior we're seeing now from the MLs is... Well, I think the word unprecedented gets way overused these days, but it's definitely appropriate here. They've got enough guns for Crusoe. What they need is intelligence. That's where we come in. And just like that, we had sieged into the Crusoe infestation. An infestation is what Wranglers called it when a pack of MLs takes an interest in a particular human settlement. Most of the time it was a small town or village, sometimes a campground or resort. The little monsters would attack people on the very outskirts, slaughtering a group of campers or an entire household in the wilderness, then ran off to expand their numbers. When enough humans were present, MLs had a tendency to get into a feeding frenzy and lose any sense of cover and furtiveness. It made them easy to pinpoint. Just follow the carnage and you'd find them eventually. Infestations rarely got past the remote kill stage before a wrangler caught wind of their killings and went in to clean things up. But this time was different. They were using hit-and-run tactics against one or two individuals, dragging the victims away instead of eating them right there and then. They were letting their victims call for help before killing them, causing family members, friends, and would-be rescuers such as the police to go out and find them, only for some of them to go missing or become victims themselves. It had gotten bad enough that the state government was now frantically urging people to not leave Crusoe's city limits, and that anyone who did was on their own. 
The current casualty total was at 27 dead and 47 missing, some of whom were police and emergency responders. That's just the ones we know about, Laszlo commented. People on vacation, loggers and road workers, transients and homeless folks, thrill-seekers wanting to see the mess for themselves. Well, I'm sure there's more than a few of them that have become locust jail. Every person the MLs take down can feed at least eight of them, said Abbott. We used to take it for granted that they were too sloppy and impatient to pull off a more methodical strategy. But here they are, doing it. They're avoiding armed confrontation, choosing to pick off the weaker elements of the town and then run off to buds. Well, I think you see the problem here, Hector. I nodded, and the certainty of that realization hit me like a sledgehammer. They're growing an army. I said. They're well on their way to doing it, said Abbott. Our best estimate is that only 300 MLs in the area now. We've taken losses from our defenses, but the only thing that's slowing down their growth rate is the government lockdown order. Fewer people moving around means fewer lunches. So, what's the game plan? I asked. Why isn't the military involved now? Theo grunted at my question. I'm in touch with a few military contacts, being ex-Navy does have its perks. Trust me, they will get involved. The current administration still wants to keep their part of the cover-up under wraps. Military involvement would all but ensure that the MLs go public. So they won't support military action unless we start seeing a serious increase in death. God knows what that threshold looks like. As for our game plan, answered Abbott, we're still working on that. Our main focus is to figure out why the MLs have changed tactics. That's why you're up here then, I said. Not to find survivors, but to study the MLs. My words came out colder than I meant them to be. I surely did appreciate my rescuers, but shouldn't saving lives be the priority and not studying the newest antics from a bunch of murder monsters? But we were searching homes for any survivors as we went, Hector, defended Laszlo, but we didn't expect to find any. You've seen how the locusts work. It's why we're frankly amazed you survived out there. The odds of your average layperson encountering a pack and living to tell the tale is, well, let's just say you're better off going up against lightning. I gave her a grim nod. I did understand the logic, but I doubt anyone likes to hear how little the world cares about their welfare. The politicians are looking out for their careers. The military putting a carnage number to their intervention the people of Crusoe hunkering down while hoping for salvation, and I get saved by a team of wandering researchers. Laszlo must have decided that her words had been less than reassuring, as she then found a reason to avoid eye contact with me by glancing at her monitors. Abbott motioned at me to come with him toward the back of the vehicle, while Theo headed for the kitchen nook. Sharing time had just come to an end. You'll have to forgive Laszlo for her bluntness. Abbott explained, gesturing to an empty bunk that I could use during my stay. We don't get to comfort survivors very often. No big deal, I replied. She's better at it than Madison. Abbott laughed at my statement. In any case, you should probably get some sleep while things are quiet. I can't promise you that we can head back to Crusoe soon. But if you stay with us, you'll be just fine. I went and sat on the bottom bunk, testing out the mattress definitely better than the cement floor I've been sleeping on for the last two weeks. Do you have any idea why the pack around my house left like it did? 
Abbott shook his head. That's a mystery, isn't it? Following another pack going in this direction, which was unusual in and of itself, because it's away from the feeding grounds of Crusoe. I figured if a pack would willingly give up on their hunting, they had to have another objective in mind. That's when we saw them merge with the pack surrounding your cabin. Hours after that, they all just left. They went into a large copse of trees, and, well, they're still in there. They haven't eaten anyone since we locked onto them with Third Eye three days ago, so I'm pretty sure they're not budding in there. Abbott then told me that I could eat or drink anything in storage. He showed me the bathroom, and he reminded me not to leave the vehicle without running it by him first. Finally, he told me that while I was free to roam for now, this was technically a military team, and if I attempted to interfere with their operations or endanger the team in any way, they did have a brig of sorts in the very back. Namely, it was a closet, and it was very cramped, but it did have air holes. It left me to get what sleep I could. I wondered if the others were going to get sleep, but I didn't wonder for too long, because as soon as my head hit the mattress, all that weariness that I'd struggled against for days on end finally won the battle, and sleep took me. For the first time in what felt like forever, I felt safe. It's a shame that feeling safe and being safe are two separate aspects of life. When we confuse the two, bad things always happen. Part 3 If I did dream the rest of that night, I don't remember it. I was happy for that. I was less happy for how I woke up, though. A trio of voices echoed off the walls, their tones raising my anxiety level. My instincts remained alert, cultivated from days of living in fear of sudden death. I sat up and listened to the team arguing with one another as they stood next to Laszlo's monitors. I'm telling you, Third Eye's working just fine, said Laszlo defensively. I inspected Voyeur too just yesterday. Then how the hell did it miss them? Theo spoke this time, his voice laced with accusation. How should I know? She shot back. I'm the tech, not the locust whisperer. That's not helpful, you two, said Abbott, attempting to mediate the situation with a calm voice. The why and the how will have to come later. Theo, get on the turret. Laszlo, go prep Voyeur 1 for interception. I'll stay here and keep an eye on the situation. Abbott turned my way as Theo stormed by me, the big man not even looking my way as he found a set of rungs to climb and proceeded into a narrow hole in the ceiling. Laszlo bolted from her chair and rushed outside, barely remembering to seal the door behind her. Abbott looked at me with a face that suggested that his reassurances about my safety had been premature. Well, you might as well come and look, Hector, he said quietly. I got up and did so. Abbott pointed to the top center monitor, the one showing a sketch-like video of the woods. I was vaguely familiar with thermal imaging where heat sources showed up as white or greenish pictures, but this showed the outlines of images, such as the tops of swaying trees or rustling grass or barely visible scurrying things on the ground. It took me a minute to clue in. This was the motion detection camera in action. Once I adapted to its format, I could make out a forest through the incomplete images. Far easier to make out were the humanoid figures moving toward the bottom of the screen the camera shifting along as they traversed the forest. 
I hadn't laid eyes on the ML since going into the basement, but they were seared into my brain so deeply that I'd recognize them from any distance away. They loped in a massive group, their indistinct outlines masking their hideous intentions, but not the energy of their movements. My mind fell back to my terrified flight for survival. I felt hunted and helpless again, even though I knew I was in the company of experts. I had to breathe carefully to keep the panic within me from rising. I don't know how much you heard, but we didn't see the pack coming, explained Abbott, his voice remarkably calm considering the threat on the screen. Normally, Third Eye can see through their masking abilities, but somehow these ones got past the drone camera and, well, they're about ten minutes away and heading right for us. I had a lot of questions right then, but mostly I was attempting to look brave when what I wanted to do was find that closet Abbott had called the brig and willingly step into it. Are they the same ones you've been tracking? Abbott nodded. MLs seem virtually identical, but they do have a few physical variations that can be tracked. The system can tell them apart, even if we can. It's the same pack, except less of them. I gave a questioning look, and he elaborated. They went into the cops with 44 MLs, came out with 34. I've never seen a pack lose members to anything other than combat. Those 10 might still be in there, or they might have shaken us. Regardless, we have to kill the pack now. They're in full hunt mode. Can, um, can I stay here and watch? I asked. My instincts still wanted me to hide away, but I wasn't about to do it. What I really wanted was some more flashballs, but I'd settled for knowing what was going on. Abbott nodded to me as he took the desk chair and began working with the keyboard, switching monitor displays to brand new programs. Just don't ask me questions right now. Just don't ask me any questions right now. Theo, you're in position. I couldn't hear the response through Abbott's earpiece, but I did hear Theo's muffled voice echo down to us from the hole in the roof. Abbott then asked Laszlo the same question and seemed satisfied by her response. He brought up a new screen displaying data concerning Voyeur 1. Laszlo, once Voyeur 1 is up, get back here immediately. I need five minutes for shock and awe to come online. Hmm. Shock and awe. I had a couple of ideas about what that meant coming to mind, but I was going to obey the don't questions asked rule for now. Then, almost as an afterthought... Abbott reached into a desk drawer and handed me an item shaped like a white teardrop about the size of a human tooth. I stared at it helplessly until Abbott realized my ignorance. Stick it in your ear, pointy end first, then push the button on the top. It's our radio. Now, normally I wouldn't let you eavesdrop, but you're in harm's way and you might need the information. Well, I've never been a fan of those little mini radio devices. I also have a problem with sticking things in my ear. At the very least, it's distracting. But I took the device and inserted it as instructed, wincing at the feel of it, but otherwise not complaining. I could hear Laszlo's voice echoing in my ear canal, a tone implying a measure of excitement or perhaps even fear. Fire one's ready. Coming back in, she said. A second later, I heard the piercing whine of a drone engine revving up. A minute later, she hurriedly came through the side door and latched it tight. Abbott let her have her desk back, standing behind her as she worked her tech magic. The smile on her face answered my earlier pondering. She was obviously getting a kick out of this moment. 
One of the monitors switched to a static camera position, most likely from a camera attached to the oasis itself. This one was night vision, showing a green-tinged hillside that I wagers was the one I'd trekked down hours ago. A number of blurry humanoid shapes were bounding down it, and my blood cooled a little more at the sight of each approaching creature. Do I have clearance? asked Theo on the radio. The cold state of his voice gave me flashbacks to Madison and her matter-of-fact tone. Well, she'd kicked all kinds of MLS before we'd parted, and I hoped Theo could do the same. Let Viawan do its thing, then open fire, ordered Abbott. I don't think this is the time for a field test, Theo replied, now sounding a tad annoyed. That's why we call them field tests, Theo, said Abbott. We can't always pick the moment. Sometimes it picks us. The monitor showing Voyeur 2's camera stopped tracking the main cluster of MLs and instead locked onto a flying object with four circular fan engines. I assume that was Voyeur 1. We watched as the drone made a dangerous dive toward the heart of the cluster, then veered up a second before ploughing into the ground. An object fell from it, landing just ahead of the pack. They didn't seem to notice or care about the drone or the object it had dropped, and they ran onward. And then the picture blurred as a massive burst of heat, debris, and smoke filled the screen. The picture retracted as Voyeur 2 repositioned to show a wider view of the carnage, and while I couldn't personally determine how effective the explosive had been on the MLs, there was definitely a lot less movement than before. Smoke obscured much of the blast sites, and that made me nervous. Laszlo laughed and let out a short whoop of victory. Look at that, she said. We've just witnessed the future of ML warfare. Don't get ahead of yourself, said Abbott, clearly not as sold as she was. Theo, what do you see? A shot rang out from above, followed by two more in quick succession. Mercifully, it wasn't relayed through our earpieces, or else I suspect the noise would have blown out my eardrum. When Theo finally spoke, I noted the edge in his voice this time. I just picked off two of them, still coming our way. You did some damage, Laszlo, but not as much as you think. Well, he was right about that. When the smoke cleared enough to give us a better idea of the results we could see a number of still forms on the ground, some in pieces. Others were moving, a few missing body parts, a few limping, but the pack was still advancing. Laszlo's smile faded as she counted the casualties. Damn it, I think we only got eight of them, and they're not retreating. What the hell's motivating these guys? More shots sounded out, and we watched as a few more MLs bit the dust as they came on. They were spreading themselves out now, dodging behind trees and brush wherever available. Theo must have had sniper training, because even with their speed and the cover of night to aid them, he still made them pay for every inch of their advance. But it took less than a minute for the remaining MLs to reach the edge of our camp. Voyeur 2 showed an overhead view of the oasis as a dozen figures tightly encircled us. Theo, button up, Abbott instructed. The shooting ceased and I heard metallic clanging, as if a door or hatch was being closed and latched. Theo came down the rung shortly after, carrying a sniper rifle and looking like he'd been called away from his favourite pastime. Laszlo, power down the lights and get ready to use shock and awe, said Abbott. 
He then looked directly at me. You're safe where you are, Hector, but I advise you not to touch the walls of the vehicle, just in case. I looked at him with confusion. Is this vehicle electrified? It's about to be, said Laszlo. I thought MLs were fireproof, I observed. Electricity doesn't burn them, but it still wrecks them, said Theo. He moved to a weapons rack and traded his sniper rifle for an assault rifle. He also handed out two pump-action shotguns, one to Abbott and one to Laszlo. He looked at me as if debating whether to arm me as well, but a quick shake of my head disabused him of the notion. Now was definitely not the time to field-test my gun skills. Laszlo put her shotgun to the side and held her right hand over the enter button on her keyboard. We wait for the MLs to climb on us, then hit the juice. 20,000 volts running through them for 20 seconds, and they're usually in a very bad state afterwards. The MLs were quick to oblige, as I soon heard the pitter-patter of terrible feet on the roof of the vehicle. Then the overhead lights flickered off, leaving us with only the computer monitors as reliable light sources. And for a brief moment, I was back in the cabin basement, a prisoner awaiting execution. I put a thumb to my mouth and bit my nail to stave off my desire to make noise, to talk away my fear as the footfalls increased in number. I wanted to have faith in my protectors, but true faith is something earned, not given. Abbott finally got the order by nodding to Laszlo, and she plunged a finger onto the enter button. I held my breath, waiting for some kind of light show or sizzling sound, or even the rancid smell of burning wires. Some proof that shock and awe was underway. Indeed, I ended up experiencing all three signs, but they came from under the computer desk, from the compartment that Laszlo had emerged from when I first met her. Scattered light lit up the interior, accompanied by brutal fusing sounds. Theo and Laszlo swore as the compartment smoked up with acrid fumes, the unexpected light show dying out a few seconds later. The ceiling lights came back on as Theo went to grab a fire extinguisher hanging on the wall. Abbott stood there calmly and then walked to the weapons rack, opening up an unmarked drawer and rooting around inside. Laszlo kept swearing as she hammered away at her keyboard, and I decided not to ask any obvious questions at that point. Goddamn all of rodent kind to hell, Laszlo colourfully cursed as she worked. I knew those bastards were chewing on something, but why can't they go after food like normal pests? Theo knelt down and brought the extinguisher to bear on the compartment. Abbott finished his search and came over to me. I was amazed by his calmness, as if all this was more a minor inconvenience than a life-and-death struggle. Perhaps that was why he was in charge, the cool head when the crap hit the fan. He handed me a spherical object, and I almost laughed when I recognized it as a flashball. It was a different model than the ones Madison had used. It had a plastic clip attached to it, and I noticed Abbott's other hand held a bandolier with several more flashballs hanging off of it. The Wrangler version of a grenade belt, apparently. He managed to get Theo and Laszlo's attention and then outlined the new plan, such as it was. They were going to do this the old-fashioned way, get up close and personal. Open the ball, toss a flashball, then run out and blast every ML they could see. I was staying put. The flashball in my hand was just a precaution. Theo seemed to approve of the plan, while Laszlo appeared sickened by it, 
remarking that there were reasons why they killed MLs from a distance. But she took up her shotgun and got into position just the same. I understood the reasoning. No help was coming. The Oasis couldn't move in this state, and the MLs had the patience of a redwood. But the idea of opening that door felt like the kind of stupid move done in horror movies that got protagonists killed. I could see the nervousness in Abbott's face as he gave Theo the order to open the door. I had the feeling that this team was used to doing its death-dealing from safer positions. I saw Laszlo bite her lip as Theo threw the door wide. Beyond it, I saw a faint tinge of dawn in the sky above a shadowed world of forested hills. The command vehicle did have a few external lights activated, enough to illuminate the surroundings. And I saw the little nightmares in the flesh once again. Every single time I see them, I still marvel at the unreal degree of similarity between them. The same bald scalps, the same lipless mouths, the same ebony eyes that sucked in the light around them. I counted four within my line of sight, and they shrieked with desire upon seeing a path to their prey. And they were shrieking a different tune as Theo's flashball went off, blinding them with a wave of blue. One little bastard was mere feet away from the door when Theo came out with calm, methodical ease and plugged it in the head. Abbott went next, his shotgun roaring at other targets that I couldn't see from my vantage point. Laszlo said a quick prayer to the Virgin Mary as she ran out, disappearing from my sight as she covered the backs of her teammates. The air was congested with screams and gunfire as the MLs came on, Flashes of blue and bursts of white throwing a strobe light effect over the battle. I glanced at the monitor, depicting Foyer 2's overhead camera, showing that the MLs on the other side of the vehicle had joined the fray. They didn't charge the team like the ones that had gone after Madison and me. These ones liked to use protection, move from cover to cover. I heard Theo yell out in frustration as his shots missed more than they hit. Three MLs appeared to understand their prey better than before. But they were still driven to attack, and one by one they fell to bullets and pellets. I forced myself to look away from the monitor and back at the door. There was a cold comfort in watching the action from a drone's perspective. It detached you from reality, even if reality was right in front of you. But an ML wasn't going to burst through the monitor. If it came for me, it would be through that door. My timing proved prescient for a meat locust chose that moment to charge up the ramp, aiming right at me with maddening rage creasing its face. I had just enough time to panic bolt out of my seat before a shotgun blast went off and the ML's face disappeared in a puff of grey dust, the body collapsing just inside the door. Laszlo was on the ramp behind it, wearing a frantic face and panting from exertion. She looked at me, then pointed at the monitors. "'Tell me if it's clear, Hector.' she asked. It took a moment to obey, as I still felt a tad freaked out from the monster's suicide charge, but I finally looked and saw no more MLs in the area. Only their bodies remained. We're clear, I told her. Then grab the first aid kit on the second rack to your right and get out here, she ordered hurriedly. Abbott's hurt. One lesson I was beginning to learn from my continuing experiences in this crisis was that victories never felt like victories. No matter how many times I've escaped death, I never quite get clear of it. And someone always pays for my survival. This time around, it was Abbott. Not that I could have done much, but I still could have done something. 
The flashball in my hand wouldn't have done much more than the one already flashing outside. If I'd known how to shoot adequately, I might have been of use. Instead, I was just like the drones the team deploys in the field. Just another voyeur. Abbott was now lying on a blower bunk with a sizable bandage on his right leg, one that was close to soak through. The way Theo told the story, two MLs had come in blindly charging Abbott, one going high and one going low. Abbott managed to blast the one aiming for his head, but the low one got a nasty swipe at his leg before Theo took it down. The claws must have nicked his femoral artery, as he'd been bleeding badly but not spraying. I'd gone out and helped apply pressure to the wound as he groaned in agony, and we got the bleeding under control. But his wound was long and deep. There's no way we could fix it in the field. I sat next to him to keep an eye on his condition, as Theo and Laszlo passionately argued over the course of action. He occasionally liked to smile my way as if to say, These two, right. Even in pain and in a precarious situation, he still kept his calm. We need to pack up and go now, Theo demanded. He needs surgery. No argument from me, Laszlo shot back. But we can't leave without the drone. Theo made an exasperated face and shook his head. You and your tech. It's not worth ever dying over it, or anyone else. You know that's not it, Laszlo countered. If we leave here without knowing what's going on, all this is going to be for nothing. I was really tired of having to play catch-up in these conversations, so I raised my hand to get their attention. Okay, what drone are we talking about here? They looked at each other as if debating whether I was entitled to an answer, but it was Abbott who replied, his voice more strained than ever. While you were sleeping, Laszlo sent Voya 3 into the cops that was hiding our pack. She decided we needed to know what they were doing, and I agreed. How many drones do you guys have? I asked, more of a rhetorical question than one expecting a response. We have four, Laszlo replied. Our third eye system was designed to have constant surveillance when we're tracking a pack, so we have three drones programmed for overlapping coverage over a 24-hour cycle, and one for backup. I reprogrammed Wire 3 to go in under manual control. It was transmitting fine for the first two minutes, but then it hit some weird signal interference. Almost five minutes in, the signal was lost. The drones are programmed to land if they break contact, and its internal hard drive can save up to 20 minutes of footage, and so... So, uh, it might have recorded something important, interrupted Theo. Or it might be a wild goose chase. It's not a reason to risk our lives any further. I disagree, Theo, said Abbott. We're missing 10 mLs, and they were doing something in that cops that they didn't want us to see. The pack's attack on us wasn't typical ML behavior. It was deliberate and coordinated and nigh on suicidal, as if they saw us as a serious threat and were willing to die coming at us than let us interfere with what they're doing up there. We need to know what that is, and our best chance of knowing is with Vyra 3. Theo sighed in frustration, then looked straight at Abbott and said, By we, uh, you mean me, of course. If you wouldn't mind, Abbott replied. Theo laughed. <laughs> you sweet talker. But it's not going to work this time. I can't carry back a drone and defend myself at the same time. Well, I can come, offered Laszlo. No, you can't, Theo insisted. You need to keep Third Eye running and watch over Abbott. 
We don't leave Abbott alone, or I don't go. I had a feeling that I knew what Theo was after, but he wasn't about to come out and ask me. I knew he wouldn't ask any more than the others would have asked. They were about saving lives, not endangering them. But my overdeveloped hero complex was already poking me to speak up. It was almost like destiny was determined to keep throwing these moments at me over and over, till I got it right, or finally died. Now, for the record, I don't believe in destiny. I do believe you can't do nothing and then expect a happy ending. I can go, I blurted out. All three of them looked at me sceptically, but none of them outright denied me. I'm serious, I said. I can hike, I can carry, I know my way around flashballs. Theo nodded, a grim smile on his face. I can't guarantee your safety, Hector, but... Come on, you're not serious, said Laszlo. By his own account, he's never fired a gun. Theo gave her a hard stare. Which is why you're staying here and why he can go. You can defend the camp. I can defend him. It's either this or we bug out. Laszlo looked like she wanted to protest further, but then changed her mind and merely shook her head quietly. You sure about this, Hector? spoke Abbott as he sat up, wincing as his legs shifted on the bed. It's still dangerous out there. Believe me, I'd rather not, I replied. But you guys need the help. Besides, I hate unsolved mysteries. I expected further protest from Laszlo. Instead, she gave me practical travel advice and tips on how to spot ML activity as we packed up the camp and prepped the oasis for travel. Abbott wanted the vehicle ready to leave the moment Theo and I returned. We also decided to wait until daylight. It was only a couple of hours off. There were no real tactical advantages to daytime, since the MLs were no less dangerous in the sun than in the dark. But humans are creatures of the light, and our morale would improve with the sun in the sky. They gave me a blue-tinted Kevlar vest for protection, the flashball belt with eight balls attached, a backpack that held a digital camera, and a sample kit for any potential unknown anomalies that we might run across. Oh, and a pistol with a holster. Theo insisted on the pistol. Even if I'd never fired a gun, it might save my life. I almost felt like one of the team now. <laughs> I certainly looked the part. Laszlo reminded me that while Third Eye would be watching us the whole time, we'd be out of sight once we entered the cops. If I did everything Theo asked of me, I should be fine. She also told me not to screw this up and make them look bad for letting me do this. She smiled as she said it. <laughs> I could think of worse people to be watching my every move than Laszlo. Abbott gave me a farewell address from his bed, more a speech than advice. We don't normally trust civvies for this kind of mission, Hector, but we will with you, not because we're desperate, but because I see an important quality in you. When you do this job long enough, you learn to spot it in people. You don't go through what we do and go back to a safe life with a safe family in a safe community. You know better, and you'll carry that knowledge the rest of your life, but there's still a place for you if you want it. He never did tell me what he saw in me. I realize now that this was not just a desperate move. It was a test. Even now I don't know if what he thought he saw in me had been real. Every coach knows to give the team a pep talk before a game. Even when you know that somebody has to lose. Part 4 
I felt an eerie sense of calm as I followed Theo up the hill. The kind of peace I used to get when I hiked in the woods. Seeing the sun after days of solitude might have had something to do with it. Feeling its warmth on my cheeks and seeing the night's lingering darkness melt away. Or maybe it was the constant whine of the drone hovering above the trees in our heads. Knowing that Laszlo would give us an instant warning via the radio in my ear if a meat locust showed up. I'd felt on edge with Madison... Not because I didn't trust her, but because no one person can cover all dangers, no matter how much of a badass they were. That said, my calm was never far from collapsing. My hike started by moving through a wafting dust cloud of grey, the lingering residue of dozens of dead MLs decomposing rapidly. My outfit had carried some of it along, and no matter how much I wiped it away, I never felt completely clean. A constant reminder that there were hundreds of these monsters around Crusoe, and who could say how close the next pack was from our position? Not to mention the tent missing MLs. More than enough to take Theo and me down if we got too complacent. Regardless, I chose to enjoy the picturesque view and the smell of pines and the freedom of movement that I finally had. Theo seemed less enthralled and more focused on keeping us in the right direction. We were skirting Cell Point this time, aiming for a small valley two miles past it. That valley held the cops that the pack had disappeared into, and where the lost drone was now. You guys are boring, you know that, spoke Laszlo in my ear at one point. No dirty jokes, no nervous comments. Well, I knew Theo had no sense of humour, but I didn't think you'd be a killjoy, Hector. Well, at least I can turn off the radio when you tell your bad puns, lads, said Theo. Silence the chatter, you two, ordered Abbott. We may have hostiles in the area. I couldn't help but smile. Even after last night's frantic battle and Abbott's injury, the group still held on to its camaraderie. It also disturbed me somewhat. How many run-ins with the MLs did you have to rack up before you became desensitized to their horrors? It was close to two blessedly uneventful hours before we came to the edge of the copse. It was a tight cluster of pines that had grown too close together, their upper boughs plentiful with needles, but their lower limbs starved of light their bare branches twisting and drooping towards the ground. If I'd been a superstitious type, I might have deemed it a cursed place. The sun had less power in there, the trees turning the copse into a shadowed realm where monsters hidden awaited the unwary. Theo must have been feeling nervous too, as he held his assault rifle at the ready and thumbed off the safety. I grabbed a flashball from my belt and held it in my left hand, content just to be holding it. I figured if the MLs attacked us... I'd do exactly what I'd done with Madison. Let Theo do the killing, and me the distracting. Follow close behind me and watch our backs, instructed Theo. We don't have the third eye in there. We go in, find the drone, and get out. No diversions or distractions, got it? I nodded to Theo, and he started in, failing to see me hesitate. I knew what I needed to do, what I'd volunteered to do, and here we were about to do it. But now that I was at the mouth of the lion's den, my earlier convictions were less convicting. It's hard to overcome those pesky survival instincts within us. They're present for a reason. Hey, Hector, don't you puss out now, scolded the voice in my ear. Laszlo could see me hesitating, and it was enough to get me moving. Besides, I definitely didn't want Theo getting too far ahead. To be fair to the trees, the copse wasn't any more macabre or menacing than the rest of the forest. In fact, there was precious little brush and grass since the trees hogged up most of the sunlight. 
Still, I studied every tree for the telltale signs of enigmatic fungus or distortion, the favoured camouflage of the MLs. Every crunching branch under my foot felt like a gunshot going off. We swept through the copse in a slow, wide pattern, hoping to spot the wayward drone while hoping not to spot anything else. Every few minutes, Laszlo or Abbott chimed in to check up on us. I was a little surprised that we hadn't lost radio contact. After all, Laszlo had complained of some kind of signal interference with the wayward drone. She was even surprised at the clarity of our communications. I wasn't going to overthink it, though. Dealing with malfunctioning tech was her territory. I was just the mule in this mission. I lost track of how long we spent searching the cops. Certainly long enough for me to start feeling a little bored. We were almost to the other edge of the cops when I spotted it. A metallic object resting on a bed of broken branches. I think I found it, I told the team, and Theo confirmed my catch. Laszlo whooped with joy as we went over to it, Theo telling me to keep an eye out while he made a quick inspection. I scanned the trees as I had for the last half hour, knowing not to let my guard down despite my elation at this meager success. Theo talked on the radio with Laszlo, describing what appeared to be damage to the drone's forward right propeller. She moaned and said that it wasn't going to fly back with the propeller down, so I had to carry it back. Well, I hadn't come out here for nothing. And then I noticed something odd. I was pretty sure I could make out in the distance some strange rock-like structures. There were a lot of trees in the way, so I couldn't make out much. But I could easily tell that the structures weren't natural. They were also pretty small, and the more I stared at them, the more they reminded me of statues. Statues of what, I wasn't sure. Who would bring statues out here? Theo had said no diversions, and part of me agreed with him. I didn't want to press our luck, but I was getting an ominous vibe from looking at those statues. Theo, there's something over there, I said. He stood up and looked where I was pointing. He was silent as he stared, his face unreadable, and he looked back at me with a frown. I said no diversions, and I mean it. Whatever's over there is not our priority. Abbott spoke up on the radio, asking for clarification of our current conversation. Theo groaned and said, It's an unknown anomaly, roughly 70 meters away. We'd have to go investigate for more info. You know, the drone did go down right there, pointed out Laszlo. It might be... Hush, lass, said Abbott. The radio then went silent for a few beats. When Abbott spoke up again, his tone was far more serious. Theo, do you think it's safe to investigate? I don't think any of this is safe, Abbott, Theo replied. But I think we can divert with minimal added risk. Then go check it out. But if anything starts moving, get out of there. Roger that, finished Theo. He looked at me and added, Let's get the drone and get moving. He helped me rig up a harness to the drone with some straps taken from my backpack. This way I could carry the drone with less effort even keep one hand free if the need arrived. Once that was done, I fell behind Theo as we hiked the short distance to the unknown anomaly. We moved past the cluster of trees that had obscured our vision, and what we saw made things both clearer and murkier simultaneously, as well as making my heart accelerate. Small statues occupied a very small clearing within the copse, a group of ten figures in a circular formation with each figure spaced an equal distance from the next. Their appearance was unmistakable. Meat 
locusts. They were the same size and shape, but their skin resembled bleached white chalk or calcium instead of their typical snake-like texture. They were all kneeling down as if kowtowing, facing outward from the center of the circle. A line of dust led inward from each figure, meeting in the center and forming a large circular mound, with pieces of the same substance littering the ground around it. Jesus, said Theo. Hector, don't touch anything. He continued around the circle, inspecting the figures carefully. I stood in place, unsure of what else to do. Oh, um, can someone start talking? asked Laszlo in my ear. Also, start taking pictures. We can't see what you're seeing. That jogged me into action. I put down the drone and extracted the digital camera and sample kit from my backpack. As I powered up the camera, I watched as Theo poked one of the figures with the barrel of his rifle, eliciting a puff of dust upon contact. I think we've found the remains of the missing MLs, he said. Remains? asked Abbott incredulously. As in corpses? Not uh, exactly. Theo gave Abbott and Laszlo a cursory description of the site before us, while he gestured at me to bring over the sample kit. I did so and then began taking pictures of the entire scene. Theo extracted a plastic container and a pair of tweezers from the kit and began carefully plucking material from the nearest corpse, while having most of it crumble away. I was in agreement with Theo. I believe these figures were once MLs. I stooped to stare into the face of one of them. I saw hollow eye sockets and a mouth empty of teeth or flesh. It was as if we were seeing only their outer skin, hardened by some bizarre process of petrification. It's like something hollowed them out and left behind their skin, continued Theo. The remaining matter seems to have undergone some kind of calcification. It's like they were doing some kind of ritual, I offered, taking a picture of the emptiness beyond the corpse's eyes. I should have taken more, but being so close to even a dead ML ruined my calm. I stood back up and continued my picture-taking with the next ML corpse. The posturing, the organization... It's almost religious in nature. These things don't do rituals, Theo remarked. They sure as hell don't worship anything. How do you explain these poses, then? I said, waving to the figures. You think someone killed them, positioned them, and then turned them to stone? Folks, let's leave the conjecture for later, spoke up Abbott. Theo, Hector, five more minutes of data collecting, and then get out of there. I was almost disappointed to have to leave. Emphasis on almost. I felt like we'd stumbled onto a dark secret that no other human had discovered until now. MLs holding rituals and corpses that didn't dissolve. This had to be something huge. Why else would the MLs hide the act in the first place? But, well, I had a pattern of learning intriguing and hidden knowledge right before life's bounty of horror found me once more. As I was about to find out, that pattern wasn't changing any time soon. Once we cleared the cops, Laszlo walked me through a process of transmitting the camera's pictures through its Wi-Fi, using her watchful drone as a signal relay. Laszlo didn't want to wait another two hours to get the data. Theo wasn't happy about the delay, wanting us to get moving. He was more on edge now, even though he'd accounted for the missing MLs. I couldn't blame him. I felt out of sorts after our discovery, like the world had found yet another way to warp my sense of reality but I didn't think we were in more danger than before. Whatever the MLs had done had occurred a few hours ago, 
and the team had killed the only pack in the area. As long as we got back to camp and disembarked before another pack showed up, we'd be home free. The day remained sunny and cheerful, and while I felt like a beast of burden as I carried the recovered drone, I was kind of enjoying the moment. I knew I wasn't really cut out to be a soldier, but I might make a good researcher. I no longer felt like such a tag-along. I knew I was a long way from being at the same level as the rest of the Wranglers, but at least I was walking the path. It was that moment when I realized I was seriously contemplating this life. Madison hadn't made it look real appealing, what with the lonely hunts in the woods and the constant threat of death, but Abbott's team made the experience feel almost like an adventure. Maybe it was all about how you approached it. Not everyone had to do it like an old-fashioned safari. There was a high-tech way to do the job. Modern technology against the monsters. Then I found myself getting angry because, once again, the proof of the government's malfeasance was on display. If they'd just thrown even a tiny percentage of the federal budget into solving this crisis, there wouldn't be dozens of dead innocents and a swarm of monsters to contend with. I made a mental note to ask Abbott a lot more questions when we were back in Crusoe. I wanted to know how we'd gotten there, because I wanted to help make sure we never got here again. The reason I was having these long bouts of cogitation was because Theo had all but clammed up during our trip back. He watched the trees with keen interest, as if he couldn't trust Third Eye to cover us. I thought about asking what was bothering, but I knew better than to disturb a vigilant soldier. Laszlo had been quiet until we were halfway to the camp. Then she piped up with her initial analysis of the ML Circle ritual, as she was calling it. I think she named it that just to poke Theo, who still maintained that MLs don't do religion. She admitted that she didn't know what the bowing was all about, but she did believe that these MLs had done this process to themselves. In fact, it looked like they created something in the center of the circle. Some of those fragments remind me of, well, eggshells, she said in an unconfident tone. Eggshells, I asked. Like they laid an egg. Built one, perhaps, Abbott remarked. Or it was just excess material that their creation cast off once it was ready. I'm starting to come around to Laszlo's thinking. The whole process reminds me of some kind of joining ritual, the many coming together to create the one. The one? Spoke up Theo for the first time in an hour. So you think we're not alone? Theo... I know you too well, Abbott replied, his tone growing more serious. You get quiet when you think we're in trouble. You think something's out there too, don't you? Theo grunted in acknowledgement. Uh, call it Wrangler's intuition, but yeah, I haven't felt right since we started back. ML's bud on a one-to-one -one basis, I pointed out. I saw it in action. Why would they sacrifice ten MLs to make only one thing? That's a good question said Laszlo, and I don't like any of the potential answers. I'm going to put up a second drone, just to be safe. I joined Theo in scanning the wilderness, unsure of what I was looking for, but assuming I'd know it when I saw it. We passed by the cabin that had once been my sanctuary, but I barely gave it a glance. Suddenly, I really wanted to be away from here, or at least in the oasis with a lot of steel between the outside world and me. We were maybe twenty minutes away from the camp when I heard the radio crackle in my ear. Laszlo's voice interspersed with a burst of static that obscured her words. Theo and I instinctively stopped and tried to contact her, but if she could hear us, we weren't able to tell. 
I could make out Laszlo's tones, heightened and growing more frantic, as if she was desperately trying to get a hold of us, or her own situation was rapidly deteriorating. Laszlo, Abbott, someone, come in, Theo demanded, but again the answer was more static and barely audible voices. Theo then took off at a fast jog, not even bothering to warn me of his intentions. I tried to keep up as best I could, but I didn't have his physique or conditioning, and he left me in the dust after a few minutes. By that time, the radio was no longer crackling. It no longer did anything except relay Theo's occasional frantic calls to his friends. I understood Theo's concerns, but I felt rightly abandoned during the long minutes I jogged after him, hoping that I knew the path back to the camp well enough not to get lost. Then again, I was also afraid of what I would find at the camp. I grabbed a flashball from my belt and held it as I ran. It gave me enough confidence to keep moving. I could hear Theo yelling out to Laszlo and Abbott as I neared the camp, and I spotted him just outside the oasis, holding his rifle up slowly, advancing up the ramp. I switched to walking as I entered the camp's perimeter, panting and unable to get a word out but still moving forward. I dropped my drone load to the ground and took out my pistol, remembering to switch off the safety this time. Theo disappeared through the doorway as I closed in, and his yells ceased at the same time. Then I spotted the trail of crimson on the ramp, bright and shiny and recent. Adding to the horror was that the solid metal door was hanging off of one hinge and had taken several cruel dents as if something massively strong had attacked it and ultimately won. I spotted a drone parked on the ground near the ramp, perhaps the one Laszlo had been preparing for launch. Voyeur 4 was still in the air, its incessant whine now an unwelcome distraction. Pistol in my right hand, flashball in my left, I went up the ramp and stopped just before the entrance. I wanted to help the team, even if it meant walking into a lion's den, but I wasn't an idiot. Theo, I yelled. You okay? There was no immediate answer, and I was about to throw the flashball inside when his voice spoke up at last. God, yes, Hector, I'm okay. I knew I wasn't going to like what was in there, but I went in just the same. The first apparent change to the interior was a small pool of blood congealing next to the bunks. That and the human leg lying in it. Considering the large soap bandage wrapped around it, I could easily identify its previous owner. Abbott. My heart froze up at the revelation. Theo was standing near it, looking like he'd just been kicked hard in the ribs. Beyond the pool of blood and severed limb, there were a few splashes of blood on the bunk Abbott had occupied. A bloody handprint here and there, but little other damage. No random destruction of property. It wasn't like the MLs to ignore an opportunity to destroy humanity's work, or be so tidy. Then again, how the hell did the MLs get past a solid steel door? They... It dragged him away, Theo muttered in a low, deadly voice. Tore off his leg and dragged him away. Even though he was the military veteran of the group, I think my shock wore off quicker than his. Abbott had been his friend for who knows how long. I'd known him for less than a day. Theo, what about Laszlo? I managed to ask. I am... I don't know. She's not here. They, they must have... He trailed off, 
gripping his rifle and moving past me to the door. He started looking into the forest, probably hoping to scope out a trail to follow. I became afraid of his next move. Theo, tell me you're not going after them. He looked at me with unmistakable rage shining in his eyes. They got them, Hector. I wasn't here and they got them. They might still be alive, and even if they aren't... If you go after what did this, you'll end up like them, I insisted. I couldn't believe I had to be the voice of reason, but here I was being it. I still need your help, Theo. I can't make it back on my own, and we have information that could save lives. Please tell me you're staying here. I wasn't sure if he was buying what I was selling. I looked out again at the forest, his conflicted priorities battling it out on his face. Then he closed his eyes and said, I'm securing the perimeter. I won't... I won't leave you, Hector. But I can't be in here right now. He went down the ramp, ending our conversation. I had to trust his words. I'm not sure what I'd accomplished, though. I wasn't any better off than Theo. That brief window of friendship and safety that I'd occupied was gone, and I had no idea what to do. God, what were we up against now? What had the MLs unleashed on the world? And how the hell were we... I heard the noise in the back of the vehicle, what they called the storage section as it had little else but cabinets and drawers for personal effects, supplies and equipment. It came off as a soft metallic wrap almost like something banging gently on a metal cabinet. My sorrow switched to fight or flight, heavy on the fight. Theo hadn't searched the vehicle. In his shock, perhaps, he'd made a mistake. I wasn't in the mood to run from this particular fight. I raised my gun and moved down the length of the vehicle, stepping up to a large closet that Abbott had declared their improvised brick. I thought I heard a soft shuffle inside there. An ML preparing for an ambush, perhaps, though the better part of me must have thought otherwise. I held my gun at the ready, used my free hand to open the door, prepared to fire at a moment's notice. In that otherwise empty closet, a wide-eyed Laszlo greeted me with a pistol aimed at my chest, and it was pure providence that neither of us shot the other at that moment. She lowered her weapon and broke out into a combination of laughter and tears, as she came out of the closet and gave me a tight hug, as if we were best friends. Once she detached from me, she asked me about Theo. I assured her he was okay, but she didn't believe me until she went to the exterior door and called out his name. He came running, and she gave him a tight hug as well. It wasn't a pack, Theo, she managed to say between soft sobs. It was something, something a lot worse. I didn't have a frame of reference at the time to judge how anything could be worse than a pack of meat locusts. Now, if anything, she may have underplayed the threat we were facing. Obviously, Theo and I wanted answers, but we needed to secure the vehicle first. Despite their deep grief over Abbott's death, Theo and Laszlo fell back into their respective roles as we finished preparing to leave, Laszlo swapping out drones while Theo stood guard gave the living section a hasty cleaning and wrapped up Abbott's leg in a plastic tarp for storage in the rear closet. I feared it was the only part of him we'd ever find. As I did the task, I told myself over and over that it was only flesh now, not the remains of a good man I'd been talking to less than an hour ago. 
There wasn't much we could do for the main steel door other than to use a bunch of straps to close it and keep it from banging around. Its use as a protective shield was now very limited. Once we'd secured the door, we huddled inside and voted on our next move. The smartest plan was to get the Oasis moving and head back to Crusoe. We were down a Wrangler, our resources were significantly depleted, and we were up against an unknown threat that had penetrated our defences with little effort. But instead, we unanimously voted to hear out Laszlo first. Maybe it's the human part of us that wants to know the answers, even when it puts you further in jeopardy. Or perhaps we needed to know because there was a good chance that this new monster wasn't all that far away and might come at us again. Better for us to have some idea what we were up against rather than encounter it in ignorance. I was outside, installing a new battery in Voyeur 4 when I saw it, she began, sitting down at her computer desk with a bottle of water in her hands and a haunted look in her eyes. It wasn't very far away, maybe fifty yards at most. It hadn't tripped any alarms from Third Eye or the vehicle cameras. It looked humanoid, but it was using the same masking abilities the MLs use. Except, it's not the same. They look like forest flora. This one looked like a walking, flowing mound of dirt. It had multiple limbs, but how many I can't be sure of because its arms appear to grow and recede from its body at regular intervals. It was also bigger, at least my height walking toward me at the rate serial killers use in slasher movies. You know, where the killer doesn't feel like running because he knows he's going to get you eventually and he has all the time in the world. I tried to reach Abbott and you guys on the radio but there was suddenly some kind of major interference scrambling the signal. Three guesses as to who was likely causing it. She gulped down a drink of water and then continued, her hands gripping the bottle tightly. Abbott saved my life twice in ten minutes. He insisted I take my shotgun with me. I told him the MLs were all gone and that Third Eye would warn me otherwise. He said to humor an injured man and do it anyway. Like an idiot, I'd put down the shotgun several feet away, so I had to race to get it, fearing that thing would rush me while my back was turned. But that overconfident bastard didn't speed up at all. It was twenty yards away when I brought up the shotgun, and I let it get to ten yards before I opened fire. That thing had been scared of my gun. It never showed it. I'm pretty damn sure I hit it. Kind of hard to miss at that range. I emptied the entire shotgun, but it was like I was shooting wiffle balls. The whole time it maintained its masking. I've never seen an ML that could keep up its masking while it attacked. Then again, I've never seen an ML that could withstand several gunshot blasts. Not enough time to reload, so I ran back into the vehicle and locked the door. Abbott was demanding answers because he couldn't reach me on the radio. It was hard to miss all the gunfire. I was about to start talking when the thing began wailing on the door, pounding it hard enough to leave dents in the metal. Must be damn strong to even do that much. After a few blows, it started wrenching on the door and working the hinges. I used that time to reload the shotgun. I was about to load another shotgun for Abbott when one of the door hinges pulled free. The thing was about to get in, so I stood in front of the door with my gun at the ready. I didn't think my odds were good, but we weren't going to go down without a fight. Abbott must have seen things differently, because he told me to give him the shotgun and go hide in the back. I tried pretending I hadn't heard him say that, but he repeated himself and added that it didn't make sense for both of us to die. I argued that I might stop it, 
and he said that if that was possible, then it was his turn to do the heroics. I remember looking at him and seeing the lie on his face. He knew he couldn't stop it. He was giving me the best chance possible of surviving. He then gave me a direct order. Told me if I didn't obey, he made it out, he'd strip me of my wrangler status. I knew he wasn't serious, but somehow it worked on me. I gave him the shotgun, told him he was a jerk, and grabbed a pistol before I hid in the closet. I felt ridiculous, like I was a little girl pretending that the monster wouldn't see me if I hid under the bed and closed my eyes. Then I heard the door give way with a big grating shriek. Shotgun went off three times before I heard Abbott scream. It was a short scream, I guess. That's better than a long one. I heard some thumping and sliding around. And then, I heard nothing. I thought about opening the door and just rushing the monster a dozen times over. But each time I just had to recall Abbott's scream and... I just sat there. It killed him, Theo. She softly stated, more tears falling from her eyes. He told me to hide... He ordered me to. Damn it, I listened. I let it kill him. No, you didn't, Theo replied sincerely. He was right, Lars. You were right to listen to him. You don't know that, she shot back. Maybe I wounded it. Maybe a few more blasts might have done the trick. If it could take eight shells and still wreck a steel door, it was nowhere near wounded, Theo replied. Abbott understood that, Lars. He made the call. Doesn't make me feel better, she muttered. I came up here trying to rescue my girlfriend, I said, making my own attempt to console her. She was dead before I even arrived. But I still think about how if I called the cops or left earlier, I might have saved her. I don't think the doubts ever leave you entirely. I don't think you ever feel better. She gave me a slight frown. I take it you don't write Hallmark cards for a living. I shrugged. I'm not known for my pec talks. To my credit, her frown became a slight smile. Theo stood up and went over to Abbott's blood-stained bunk, looking at it as if visualizing his friend's final fate, or merely mourning his end. Don't take this the wrong way, Laz, but, but what bothers me is why I didn't come after you after killing Abbott. It wasn't like you were well hidden. Well, I don't have my guidebook on weird monsters with me, she replied. So, your guess is as good as mine. I thought about it myself. The MLs really only had one goal in life. Feed to reproduce. This new creature, besides being clearly more powerful, also had different tactics and priorities. Despite going after Laszlo, it had been satisfied with Abbott. How long would it be satisfied, though? The paranoid part of me wondered if we'd already pressed our luck too far, and this creature was on its way back to finish us off. Thankfully, we were all in agreement that it was time to get the hell out of Dodge. Theo outlined the plan. Laszlo would drive Oasis while he did guard duty in the roof turrets. I'd man the computer desk and keep an eye on the monitors. I had enough computer knowledge to work third eye at an amateur level. Laszlo told me that Voya 4 would follow Oasis on its own, and it should have enough battery power to last the trip to Crusoe, which was roughly 110 minutes away at a reasonable speed. As long as we kept moving and stopped only if absolutely necessary, we should make it back okay. Well, I doubted any of us thought it would go smoothly, but we kept our misgivings to ourselves as Laszlo maneuvered through a small opening that led to the driver's seat, and Theo went to his turret. I managed to get in a question about how safe the driver's cab would be if we got attacked, 
and Theo casually mentioned that all the windows were ballistic glass. Good enough to thwart your average meat locust, but definitely not the other thing. Part 5 Riding in the oasis reminded me of a time back in my childhood when my older brother owned a van, and I'd ride in the very back of it, parked on a cushioned bench seat without the slightest safety feature available. Sure, it was fun to be so free and wild, until he realised you'd be sailing through the car at 60 miles an hour if ever there was a serious accident. At least Laszlo's desk chair was bolted down and had a seatbelt. It was better than nothing, but not by much. Right out the gate, Laszlo nearly got us hung up on a fallen tree just turning us around, and I clenched my teeth every time she got close to the edge of the road, a steep slope awaiting a careless misjudgment. To ease my mind, I got familiar with the surveillance system. Laszlo had password protected anything I wasn't supposed to tamper with, but that left me plenty of archive footage to look through. I found the video footage time-stamped the arrival of our new predator. Laszlo had predicted that the video would be scrambled or too static-filled to be useful. Oh, she called it all right. She believed the beast had to be putting out some kind of radiation in an electromagnetic spectrum, interfering with radio signals and video equipment. The last clear image captured was Laszlo outside Oasis, fitting a drone with a battery. Then nothing but distortion for several minutes, until the picture cleared up to show an empty perimeter and a blood trail. I was disappointed that I couldn't see the creature for myself, but at least we'd have a clue to its presence. Video static. We travelled down the gravelly road in silence for the first forty minutes of the trip, all of us contemplating the nature of our new adversary, or trying not to think about Abbott. I appreciated the way Laszlo and Theo could push away their emotions and stay focused. I found it hard to do, even though I'd barely known Abbott. It was easier to stare at Voyeur 4 surveillance footage and slip into my role as a warning bell ringer. But I found the silence of the group growing oppressive. Dark thoughts began to slip into my mind, doubts about our chances of getting back or what kind of reception we would find in Crusoe. And naturally... I still had a lot of questions to ask. Have there ever been this many MLs in one area before? I asked. Which one of us are you asking? Laszlo replied. I didn't have a preference, I said. Then you uh, might as well talk to me. Laszlo's voice carried much fatigue. It occurred to me that I hadn't seen any of them sleep since they'd rescued me. How long had they gone without it? Theo tends to clam up when he's on the job, she explained. As to your question, the largest cluster I know of was the Kentucky Pack of 1976. That one clocked in at 97 confirmed. 97? The group around Crusoe was three times that number. We really were in unprecedented territory then. Keep in mind we've only known of the ML since 1958, she continued. They may have been out in the wilds a lot longer than that, and perhaps living in other countries. I hadn't considered the idea that MLs were a global problem, and I asked her whether that was actually a thing. Laszlo snickered. They're like rats or starlings. They find ways of getting around. There's an unconfirmed account of MLs running around the Chernobyl exclusion zone in Ukraine. I bet they love it there. Not too many people to munch on, though. 
Oh, the Russian wranglers have gotten pretty tight-lipped. Don't drone on and on with the radio. Caution, Theo. We need to stay focused. Aye, aye, Skipper, she joked in a nautical voice. I felt an abrupt swerve just then, as if Laszlo was reminding Theo that he didn't have all the power. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse here, I said, but could there be a connection between the size of the group and all the behaviours we're seeing? As Abbott used to say, that's the mystery, Laszlo answered. I could hear a tinge of sadness as she mentioned him. Correlation versus causation. Do we have a bigger group because these MLs are smarter than average? Or are they acting differently because they've reached a certain numerical advantage and are getting more coordinated? And what does any of it have to do with them performing a ritual and creating a brand new type of monster? Oh, I got nothing, Hector. And that scares me more than anything else. Laszlo silenced after that. And I was about to let it go since my questions were causing more discomfort than I'd intended. But it was Theo who picked up the thread by uttering two oddball words. Beachhead species, he said. What? What? replied Laszlo. Abbott's idea. I asked him one time where he thought the MLs came from. He told me he had a working hypothesis that suggested the MLs were a beachhead species. He admitted it was a little out there, but after today, well, he may not have been so out there. Explain, insisted Laszlo. Theo cleared his throat and began to do just that. Imagine you're a species that figured out how to manipulate genetic codes and the building blocks of life, but you're not so good with computers and robotics and rocket science. You still want to do space travel, though. Either you want to expand your species, or your planet is about to get destroyed through some global or cosmic event. However, well... Space travel takes too long and eats up too many resources for you to send your own species through space. And there's no warp drive in the cards. Instead, you use what you got. Create some kind of simpler life form that could survive centuries or millennia out in space. Put them in a bunch of space-going containers and launch them out towards inhabitable planets around distant stars. Places where life like yours could take root. Well, Abba believed that the MLs targeted humans by design we're the most advanced species on the planet. They are designed to do that on any world they arrive on. They don't just eat us. They process us. Perhaps even analyze our DNA. Then they make more of themselves. Once certain conditions are met, like reaching a population goal, they switch gears. They create a beachhead on the new world, and at that point they begin to prepare it for their true masters. Abba didn't know what that had looked like, but he did end his explanation by suggesting that if the MLs were advanced biofactories capable of cloning themselves, they might be able to do more. Well, I had no idea how to respond to all that, other than just not respond. Laszlo paused before she added her two cents, and she sounded more rattled than before. Abba didn't seem at all surprised by the thing that attacked us. Maybe... Maybe he believed it was the next step in their development. Dear God, what if the rest of them do the same thing? Oh, it's just Abbott's wild-ass idea, lads. Theo cautioned. Remember his rule? Wild-ass ideas stay in the wild unless the data proves otherwise. I like that rule, I remarked. 
We should definitely stick to... I trailed off abruptly as the video monitor showing Voyeur 4's camera feed emitted a series of beeps that I interpreted as alerts. I focused on it, apprehension coiling around my heart. Voyeur 4 wasn't just following the oasis. Its camera was also positioned to see the road ahead of us, to give us some warning of potential obstacles. The gravel road ahead predictably wound its way through dense trees and steep hills, though it would soon link up with a paved section that would finally lead us to the highway. Laszlo would have to go slower for the next few miles to keep us safe. But that wasn't what triggered the system. No, that honour went to the motion blips coming into frame as we neared that section, the ones dotting the hills and trees along the road, the ones shaped like our old unwelcome friends. I didn't bother to count them. I didn't have to. Third Eye did it for me. Eighty-four confirmed motion blips. Eighty-four of them, and most of them were ahead of us, the rest closing in. Somehow I managed to get this blood-chilling information imparted to the others. Laszlo cursed the ML's non-existent mothers. Theo grunted and then ordered me to grab the loaded shotgun he'd left by my chair. He'd given me an extremely brief rundown on how to use the shotgun. Bump, point, shoot, repeat. I had eight shells. Oh, also watch for recoil. Nowhere near adequate training, but at least I'd be less likely to miss with this weapon. You two call them as you see them, Theo instructed. And Laszlo, no matter what, you keep driving. You don't stop for anything, understand? Yeah, she replied, not sounding convinced. I didn't blame her. I knew she was the most confined of us, stuck in the cab with only a pistol and a few flashballs for defense while trying to keep the oasis from crashing. If Theo and I didn't keep her safe, none of us would be making it out of the woods. We closed in on the cluster of blips, and I glanced at the steel door, held in place by nylon straps that looked too fragile for my comfort. I told myself we were moving too fast for the MLs to catch on, and that Theo could deal with any who tried. As long as we kept moving and kept on the road, we'd be safe. Well, <laughs> I didn't believe it for a second, and I grabbed my shotgun tightly as the oasis began rounding the curves of the road. To on our right, called out Laszlo, her voice focusing me back to the monitor. Sure enough, I spotted two humanoid blips closing in from the right side of the road. A shot rang out, and one of the blips went sprawling. The other one sprinted away from the road in response. I didn't hear any more gunfire, so I figured Theo was only interested in getting us to safety and not scoring kills. I saw a group of three lingering on the left side of the road. Three on the left, I called out, hoping that was the proper way to report sightings. I felt the vehicle swerve as Laszlo tried to give us distance from the group, and another gunshot sent the three MLs scurrying for cover. As we rounded a bend, I almost swore at the sight before me. We were heading into a serious cluster of the bastards, at least a dozen, and I couldn't tell if they were on the ground, in the trees, or both. Monkeys in the trees, Laszlo yelled. The air responded with several rapid shots, and I could hear something thump onto the roof, followed by two more thumps as the blips on the monitor converged on our vehicle. Another rapid burst of fire and a lot of frantic movement from the ceiling told me Theo had his hands full removing intruders. 
Then I spotted another group rushing the road, coming at us from the hillside to our left. I tried to get out a warning, but the cacophony occurring on the roof had drowned out my words. I saw the blips take flight as they hurled themselves at the vehicle, and I could hear the bangs as they made contact. I couldn't tell if they were hanging on or if they'd fallen away until Laszlo confirmed the worst. Shit, we got clingers, three of them on the left side. One's at my window. Well, Theo didn't reply, unless you counted the bullets flying above us. The bastards knew what to target, and they were either distracting Theo or attempting to overwhelm him. I was still free, though, and the steel door opened out to the left side. I unbuckled my seatbelt and moved to the door, keeping my thoughts fixed on loosening the straps and not on how exposed I was about to get and how this door wasn't going to get closed again once I did this. I was in pure reaction mode. The team needed me, and I wasn't about to lose anyone else if I could stop it. I worked loose the first strap very quickly, then had the second one get snagged and fight me briefly before I cleared it. The door didn't need much prompting to swing outward, smashing loudly against the side of the vehicle and then hanging out at an odd angle. A parade of foliage and dust-covered hillsides sped on by in the distance. I grabbed up my shotgun, predicting that an ML would come to exploit this opening. For once, my fears proved completely accurate. It popped its head into view from the right side of the door, its jet black eyes staring at me, its mouth agape with wicked teeth. It seemed flummoxed by its luck, and it hesitated. Well, usually when I found myself face to face with these things, I felt like a chicken dinner awaiting its fate. But this time around, I was just so tired of these damn things. My shotgun roared and I was surprised by the recoil and thunderous noise of the weapon. But my aim was true, and the horrid black eyes disintegrated before the blast, the body losing its grip and falling off onto the road below. That was my first kill. Was I an official wrangler now? I made a note to ask Laszlo about it when I... Shit. Laszlo. I rushed to the opening and poked my head out, a move I now know to be far too reckless. Looking towards the cab, I could see two more MLs clinging to the driver's side door. One had a rock in its claws, pounding away at the reinforced window with it. Finding a handhold to brace myself with, I raised the shotgun at the two monsters, one-handed, and clicked on an empty chamber. Damn it, forgot to pump the gun. The MLs noticed me. The good news was that they abandoned their efforts against Laszlo, the bad news was that their efforts were now on me. Like a pair of swinging chimps, they manoeuvred toward me, screaming with desire. Suddenly I didn't feel so apathetic about them, pumping the shotgun as I backed away from the opening. These two came through the doorway simultaneously, one going low, one leaping to the side. A smart move. I couldn't target them both. The low one came at me first, but my shotgun proved faster, and its midsection turned into a cloud of dust. I pumped the shotgun immediately and tried to bring it up in time, but the second one was already leaping at me, sounding out a wailing war cry. It crashed into me, knocking me against the computer desk, forcing me to drop my shotgun as I grappled with it. Pain laced up and down my back from the impact, my arms grabbing its thin arms as it tried to rake me with its claws its lethal mouth snapping away inches from my nose. 
I'd expected it to be stronger, but I found I could keep it at bay at that moment. It writhed and twisted in my grip, but it got nowhere, until it remembered its feet. It plunged all six of its toe claws into my thighs, and it felt like nails punching into my skin. Pain drove away my fear, and I tapped into my well of anger once more. Only one move I could think of. I head-butted the thing right in its forehead. I was rather surprised by my own aggressiveness, and so was the ML. Stunned, it couldn't stop me as I pushed it off, grabbed up the shotgun, and turned its face into a vacant hole. I stood there, panting, my head growing sore, my back aching, and my thighs bleeding from six puncture wounds. Well, at least I remembered to pump the gun again as I sat down at the computer desk, training it at the opening in expectation of more company. I could then hear a voice in my head trying to get my attention, and it took me a second to remember it was the radio. Hector, respond, goddammit! Laszlo sounded desperate. Oh, how long had I been unintentionally ignoring her? I'm, I'm here, Laszlo, I finally said. You son of a bitch! She said, relief in her voice. You weren't supposed to come to my rescue. Oh, I won't make a habit of it, I said, watching the air grow thicker as the ML's corpses began to dissolve. I couldn't hear any more gunfire above me, so I glanced at the third eye video. It seemed clear ahead of us, the only lingering blips falling behind the vehicle. Theo, you okay? I asked. I heard a grunt and a colourful metaphor. A little banged up, but the roof's clear, he reported. I then spotted a group of blips on a downward slope to our left. The road was bending away from them, so they didn't appear capable of intercepting us. Well, keep an eye on our left. There's... The picture on the monitor suddenly dissolved into an avalanche of wavy distortion. At the same time, I heard a light static noise drone through my head. My heart revved up again. Our new adversary had entered the fray. Guys, the thing's back, I said to the air. Guys! No use. The radio was scrambled. But I could get to Theo through the ladder. Well, at least I could warn him. I ached all over as I got up and moved to the rungs. Looking up, I could see his boots as he moved about the turret, no doubt searching for more hostiles. It was poorly lit inside the turret, and I couldn't see much else. I yelled up to him, and at first I didn't think he could hear me. Then he repositioned and looked down at me with a questioning glare. Why aren't you using the radio? he scolded. He must not have cottoned on to the static. Theo, it's... Suddenly, there was a massive squeal as the turret's interior grew much brighter. Theo reacted instantly, trying to twist and bring his gun to bear against the thing attacking the turret. But the thing had got a hold of him and yanked him clear. I was now abruptly staring at the sky with no sign of Theo or his attacker. As if I had a secret death wish, I slung my shotgun and found the strength to climb the rungs into the turret. I was in wild pursuit, with no thought outside of somehow saving Theo if I could. I passed through the wreckage of the turret, which now resembled a peeled orange. I squeezed through the serrated opening in the steel, 
the jagged metal ripping at my clothes as I climbed onto the roof. It was still there, and so was Theo. It was much like how Laszlo had described it, a pile of humanoid dirt with legs and multiple arms that emerged and receded from its central mass. Two of those limbs gripped Theo, one at his throat and one holding his right arm out wide. Theo gritted his teeth and pounded against its grip with his free hand, but it was like pounding a cement wall. They stood on the edge of the roof, the thing deciding whether to kill Theo here or take him away for future consumption. It was clearly unconcerned by my arrival. I noticed Theo's rifle was missing, probably over the side and lost. Just me and my gun, but I knew I couldn't shoot without hitting Theo. Hell, if Laszlo was right, I wasn't sure the shotgun would be enough. I felt equally stupid and helpless, coming to Theo's aid just in time to watch him die. What the hell had I hoped to accomplish? But then, an epiphany hit me, or perhaps just a desperate thought. This thing, whatever it was, was a product of the meat locusts. It was born of their DNA and their bodies. Surely it still had some similarities with them. Surely it still shared a weakness. I was still wearing the flashball belt, and in one smooth motion I pulled a ball off, pushed its trigger button, and held it up in my right hand. I looked away, and I prayed that I was right. The ball went off with a brilliant flash, but my eyes avoided the lion's share of the light. When it cleared, I found a very different scene before me, as if the flashball had shifted reality. The dirt thing was gone, replaced by a different brand of monster. This thing was thin and lanky, covered in the same grey reptilian skin as its brethren, four long arms jutting from its skeletal torso. Two arms were covering its face, the other two lashing out wildly, suggesting it was either in pain or disoriented. It had released Theo from its grip, and he was using the opportunity to crawl away from it along the narrow roof, nursing his right arm as if it was injured. But it stopped flailing about all too quickly, lowering its arms away from its face. Like your typical ML, it had the same basic contours, no hair, no ears, slits for a nose and a ghastly wide mouth but its teeth were different, more akin to shark teeth than rows of needles. And its eyes, those eyes were not the black holes used by the locusts, but also human, solid black irises swimming in a sea of white jelly. They locked onto me, penetrated me. Oh, if there were any lingering doubts that this thing wasn't the next step up in the evolutionary chain of MLs, sharing a hard stare with it wiped them away. It seemed to be waiting for me to try something, go for my gun or reach for Theo. Instead, I mentally counted the seconds to the ball's next flash and closed my eyes as the ball flared once more. I opened my eyes again, preparing to bring up my gun and gun down my blinded enemy, but it only stood there patiently, a slight smile on its face. Panic and confusion battled for supremacy within me, as I looked straight into its unholy orbs. There was a blue sheen that hadn't been there before, some kind of built-in eye protection. A damnable thing had adapted. I must have caught it off guard and ruined its focus, making it drop its masking power, but it was ready for me now. 
Desperation guided my decisions now, as I threw the useless orb at the thing and then tried to aim my shotgun. It came right at me, the flashball bouncing off its emaciated chest as it stepped over Theo and reached for the shotgun. I got off one shot, but the blast went wild and hit only air. Two great arms gripped the weapon and sent it flying out of my grip and over the side of the vehicle. I froze up, out of ideas and too terrified to think straight as one arm grabbed my neck while two others restrained my arms. I couldn't believe that something so thin held so much strength. I was pinned in place, its patronizing smile turning sinister as it pulled me close. We were passing another hillside and out of my peripheral vision, I could see a pack of MLs surging toward the road, screaming in an oddly harmonious tone that struck me as a cheer or a show of solidarity, of triumph. They were still too far away to catch us, but they didn't need to, and they knew it. They were watching their leader punish the ones who'd hurt their brethren. They were here to watch me die. The thing finally opened its mouth, expanding it unnaturally wide, and I could see past its rows of carnivorous teeth into the back of its throat where a round orifice rimmed with a set of fang teeth awaited my face. I'm pretty sure I was screaming at that point. All I saw was my worst nightmare preparing to envelop me. A burst of gunfire broke me out of my paralysis and caused the creature to close its mouth and recoil away. Baffled, a chance to look downward and saw Theo holding a pistol in his left hand, yelling in pain and anger as he emptied his weapon into the creature's right knee. The joint held together even as bullet after bullet smashed into it, but the knee quickly grew dented and damaged. Something like pain finally penetrated the creature's demeanor, and it backed off to cover its wounded leg with its two arms. I remembered my own pistol, and in a proud moment of actual competence, I pulled it from its holster, flicked off the safety, and opened fire at the creature's face. Well, I definitely missed more than I hit, but a couple of rounds found its cheeks and caused it to recoil even further, disorienting it. Then the vehicle did a sudden turn as we rounded a steep bend, causing me to topple onto Theo and the creature to topple off the roof. Theo and I took a long moment to get disentangled from each other, exchanging incredulous looks as we sat up and stared at the road behind us. The creature was already standing up as the rest of the ML sprinted onto the road and surrounded it. Every one of them stopped in their tracks, giving up pursuit and watching us recede into the forest. Perhaps they were instinctively protecting their leader, or perhaps their master decided it wasn't worth the effort any longer. I shared one final stare with the forearm monstrosity, as we cleared another bend and the pack vanished from sight. Despite our successful escape, I felt no cheer. The romantics in life like to believe one can see into the soul of another through their eyes. Well, I don't know about that. I certainly couldn't detect souls that way. But I know hate when I see it. I knew that thing hated me, and that it wasn't ever going to forget my defiance. I don't know how far it will carry its hate, but I doubt I'll ever sleep soundly again. Part 6 well, I'm going to skip past some of the less interesting parts of the final leg of our trip back to Crusoe. <laughs> Rest assured, 
We got back without further incident. We met a roadblock man by well-armed policemen who had no idea what to make of us until one of them called it in and got us clear to continue. It wasn't exactly a hero's welcome, but I did breathe a sigh of relief as we crossed over the town line and into actual civilization again. Crusoe itself had that ghost town feel to it now, with only scattered patrols of police and National Guard walking about, watching us go by with suspicious glares. Laszlo had contacted what passed for Wrangler Field Headquarters and was told to come park at a shopping plaza near the town hospital, its parking lot converted into a field hospital. We needed medical attention for sure. Theo had a dislocated shoulder, I had minor wounds, and we had Abbott's remains to deliver. The only other casualty hadn't been human. Fire 4 had gone dark during our battle. It was back in the forest along the road, and that's where it was going to stay. We were not going back to retrieve it. The next several hours was a lot of waiting, debriefing, waiting, debriefing, medical attention, and waiting. I was so tired that I fell asleep every time I sat down, barely getting any food in me between meetings. Didn't see Laszlo or Theo much, as they were busy with their own meetings and affairs. The authorities weren't sure what to do with me. Was I a survivor, or one of these wranglers that they were supposed to give deference to? Civilians had to stay home, or be at a shelter. By all rights, I should have been sent away. But I'm pretty sure Laszlo and Theo had pulled a string or two, so the authorities let me have some freedom of movement. I knew it wasn't going to last, so I used it to go run one very important errand. I went to the hospital proper, passing by rooms and hallways filled with patients and the relatives of said patients, most of them wearing stricken expressions, some crying over the lost, some staring off into space as if haunted by their memories. I moved past doctors and nurses who looked even more tired than I felt, having seen more than their fair share of injury and death in the last two weeks. I don't think anyone could hear my story and think I had an easy time of it, yet somehow I felt luckier than these fine people who'd been dealing with the non-stop human misery. Up to the second story I went, where the patient I was out to see remained housed. When I finally found room 235, she was alone in her room, sitting in a wheelchair clad in a navy blue bathrobe, looking at our room window into the twilight sky. She didn't notice me until I knocked on the doorframe. She glanced my way, did a double take with wide eyes, and let out a sincere laugh. (laughs) I didn't really believe it until now, Madison said, turning a wheelchair to face me. Laszlo emailed me, gave me a heads up, but, well... (laughs) She was genuinely tongue-tied for the next few moments, then a smile switched to a scowl. Ah, you bastard, you were supposed to get in the rescue basket. I smiled and shrugged. Well, as you like to point out, you didn't have any actual authority over me. She grunted, though there was still merriment in her tone. I suppose you came up here to gloat about being a hero. I came up here to see you, that's it. I motioned to her wheelchair. You're not stuck in that thing, are you? I'm doing rehab, she replied. A few more days of it and I should be able to leave this stupid place. Then I can get back in the fight. The tone didn't convey much confidence. I knew better than to point out how broken bones rob sports players of their careers, and 
Oh, I didn't believe she could go ML hunting like before. I don't think she believed it either. She changed the subject by motioning to her bed as a place for me to sit. Oh, uh, you know about Abbott's team kicking ass and making earth-shattering discoveries? She looked out the window as I sat down, trying to hide her emotions from me. Don't ever tell Theo and Laszlo this, but I actually respected the hell out of Abbott. I sighed and nodded. He saved my life, just like you did. Well, she scoffed and looked at me again. I was trying like hell to get you out of there. He throws you into it. He didn't know when to quit. Still, he didn't deserve to get killed by... She gave me a curious look. Did you guys ever name it? Yeah, I um, think we're leaning towards Flesh Reaper, I said. Laszlo's idea. She frowned. Really? Well, it goes with the theme. What has Laszlo actually told you? Ah, just a bunch of conjecture. She thinks the signal interference the Reaper puts out might be a form of communication. How it commands the other MLs. She thinks it acts like a general rather than a queen. Ah, perhaps they've always been Reapers hiding out and calling the shots from a distance. Or maybe they're brand new. Regardless, I think it's safe to say that the one you fought isn't the only one out there. Oh, try to eat my face, by the way. I calmly brought up. Oh, when you're a wrangler, something's always trying to eat your face, Madison replied. Laszlo mentioned that she thinks it wasn't after your face, but your brain. She thinks that's why it took Abbott and left her alone. He was after information, and that's how it gets it. Well, personally, I think she's watched too many zombie films. I cringed at the thought of Abbott's fate, and at the thought that I'd almost shared it. I decided to change the subject. Please tell me the military's finally getting involved. She nodded, and I felt better at the news. That's not all, Hector. Story's broken wide open. We might get some real help and real funding. Best of all, we have drone pictures showing the packs around Crusoe are leaving the area, heading deeper into the forests. The siege looks like it's over. That is good, I said, though I didn't feel all that happy. Truth was, I was dreading the phone call I was going to make to my ex-girlfriend's parent, the one where I was going to somehow explain what had happened to their daughter and why they'd need to have a close casket funeral. Yeah, and that's all the good news. She said sourly, and I looked at her questioningly. The world knows about the MLs now. People are scared and angry. Many of them aren't going to take it well. Others are going to see nothing but dollar signs. And then, uh, there's this. She wheeled over to a nightstand and grabbed her iPad off it, then gave it to me. She guided me through the reports from the internet, the ones about ML attacks that weren't based in Oregon. I felt a growing unease as she rattled off the other incidents. A village in Mexico, a safari in Zimbabwe, a campground in Colorado. All within the last two weeks, all over the world. It's like a switch has been flipped, she said. No more hiding. Whatever they have planned, they're putting it into motion. I put down the iPad and stared off into the darkness beyond the window. So, um... I guess they're going to need more wranglers like us. She caught the implication. So you actually want to do this? 
No way to save you from this life. Despite her words, I could tell she wasn't at all surprised or even disappointed. I kept staring out into the night, knowing that I could still tell her that I was out and she wouldn't argue against it. I'd been looking forward to many more times like this, with people dying around me in horror battering away at my sanity. I doubted that my odds of survival were good, or that my lifespan would be long. Did one have to be crazy to be a wrangler? Well, the jury was out on that. Crazy or not, I knew what I knew. I couldn't live a nine-to-five life knowing that, as I was staring out into the shadows, hundreds of eyes were staring back at me. Staring back at all of us. If you want to save me, teach me how to shoot, I told her. <laughs> I kind of suck at guns. Well then, the uh, first story, the flesh locusts, the well, meat-eating locusts, kind of worked as a standalone story, but this one has brought so much more to this universe, and of course it seems to be uh, panning out to another episode at least. Did you enjoy this one? I thought this was great. Another two hours plus of fantastic midweek entertainment for you all. Hope you're enjoying this. Well, I am. <laughs> And it does seem like it's going to add on, doesn't it? Another episode at least. So, um, if you like it, let me know in the comment section below the video. And I am looking forward to the next episode. Are you? Oh, I keep asking this stuff, don't I? Well, that's enough for me for one night, but I will be back again very soon. Uh, the bathroom in the house is uh, getting fixed, but still a long way from doing it, so I'm grabbing recording time whenever I can get it. But, of course, I will not let you down. There will be a new video up again very soon. Till then... Sweet dreams, my dear friends, and bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this story today. It really means a lot to me and to the author of the story, of course. Well, if you want to know more about me, I'm pretty much everywhere on social media. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can download my music on SoundCloud. Um, I've got a Patreon if you feel like. Throw me a dollar or two very much appreciated and of course on reddit i have a place where you can leave stories if you want me to read one that you've written well hoping to see you all again very soon till then sweet dreams bye bye